This Saturday at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, Nevada, we're going to be treated to a UFC card featuring a former champ coming back up a weight class looking to prove that he's got everything it takes to, to continue to dominate in this sport. It It's going to captivate the attention of the entire mixed martial arts fandom, I'm sure. It's going to inspire debate from now until he walks into the cage, and I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about afterwards. But, I mean, that's enough about Cody Garbrandt for the moment. Uh, we'll get to him when we get to him. I there, saw that coming a mile away, brother. I, I, most people <laughs> did. Most people probably did. Uh, but I, I had to throw it out there anyway. You know that I am not above picking up the low-hanging comedic fruit. Uh Obviously, this is the Shillam and Duffy preview for UFC 285, Jones versus Gone. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. With me, as always, is Keith Shillen, the executive producer of the SureDog Radio Network. Keith, how are you doing? Uh, how about this? Before I answer that question, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. It's it, pretty good, you know? We, we're not that far removed from the UFC Vegas 70 recap. That was a real fun yeah. show for... Uh, what a weird card it was, but that was the palate cleanser. Assuming yes. again, knock on glass desktop, nothing weird happens. Uh, I'm super pumped. I'm, I'm so pumped, dude. I'll I, tell I, you I, why. I'll tell you why. Hit me. It, the goat is returning, man. Like it's it's not every day, you know, the magnitude of a guy like that coming back to the sport and and fighting. I mean, it's been like six months probably since Bo Nickel last fall. I so, know. But the go to come back. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had to try to up your uh, your your joke. Oh. Well, here's something for you. There's 14 fights on this card. We're I mean, we're gonna get to all of them, obviously. There are three, four undefeated, five undefeated prospects on this card. Uh should be six. Should be six. John Jones should be undefeated. Yeah, but I'm not. Not he's not a prospect. Obviously, no. there are there are five people who fought on the contender series or came in like out of regional promotions on this card. How shocked would you be if we have four future champs on this card? And like, I, I Esteban Rubovich is the one we know least about, but Farid Basharat, Ian Gary, Bo Nickel, uh, I'm. Cameron Simon is another one that, you know, the, the jury's out a little bit, but I can see Bo Nickel being a future champ. I can see Ian Gary being a future champ. It's yeah. a it's a tougher road sure. to hoe for, yeah. for Gary just because he doesn't have a single world-class skill to le lean back on, and he's in a much sure. tougher division. But, I mean, Shavkat Rachmanov. Yeah. this <laughs> And he's graduated from excited to con contender as well. But, sure. yeah. Yeah, you got me excited. Yeah, there's a there's, – um... Yeah, there's some talent on this card, man. This is a good one. I, I made the joke about Cody Garbrandt opening this thing up. His might be the worst fight on the card. That is saying something. Yeah, we don't have, like, the terrible heavyweight fight. Wait, wait, what's up with that? doesn't yeah. seem right. It, it seems very, very Where's strange. Where's Parker Porter when we need him? <laughs> He's on standby. He's on standby. <laughs> and it happens to hey. Cyril Gunn. We get that much-needed uh, John Jones-Parker Porter rematch. The UFC hinted that there's going to be somebody on deck. They haven't said who. And we're 
It's it's Francis Ngannou. <laughs> it's, it's Daniel Cormier. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking like it might actually be someone like Stipe Miocic, but yeah, he, I, I think he's got too much of an ego to play backup. Uh, I think it's it's going to be like Sergey Spivak or someone like yeah, I, I, Alexander yeah. Volkov, something like that. I mean, Alexander Volkov has done that before. Yeah, I, yeah. I guess he's someone like that. Or Curtis Blades, maybe. Yeah. And I don't hate that. If, if, they're, if their backup is any of the people we just mentioned, like I like the level of insurance and insulation that they have bought for this main event. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because on some level, the UFC is thinking the same thing you and I are. Like... Is there any chance we get some some picograms here? You know, oh, some yeah, bad yeah. news from USADA. This thing needs to get moved to, to somewhere yeah. in Southern California on four days' yeah. notice. Any uh, chance we get some sandblasting prostitutes? What was it? Oh, strippers. <laughs> any, any chance we get that? I, we can only hope. <laughs> uh, another interesting thing about this card, and little peek behind the curtain. This is why you can't have a, co- a casual conversation with Jay Petri on a weekend. Uh, that would be sure dog associate editor and head oh, of the hey. fight facts franchise. I just real, real quick, real quick. I just thought exactly who would be the backup. Who? You, you already got him on the card. Bo nickel. Oh my goodness. Right to the, right to the title. <laughs> Championship. Goat versus goat. Jones versus nickel. <laughs> yeah, the of a God. Goat versus nickel. <laughs> I'd love to see a wrestling match. Oh, uh, John Jones wouldn't. No, he he would. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it'd be interesting just because Jones would be like two hundred and forty pounds. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true. I'm, I'm still taking Bo Nickel in a wrestling match. <laughs> yeah, same. Uh, <clears throat> I I threw out casually. Sorry, you were talking about Jay Patrick. I apologize. Yeah, I just I, I threw I, out. To I him. interrupt you all the time. I know I do it. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. I, hey, you know what? I it's what we have. You know, and if I really, really want to say something, I'll just keep talking. Like we're we're fine. <laughs> like it. it should, the show well, should be called the Shillin and Duff Shillin Show. <laughs> <laughs> the Shillin and Duffy and Shillin Show, because he always gets the last word. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna put a, a three across and just put you on on like both sides of me. Like, there you go. <laughs> oh, uh, I just threw out to him casually, man. This is a 14-fight card. I can't remember the last time there was a UFC card with five minus 500 or greater favorites on it. Like, 40 seconds later, he comes back with, it's happened three times in UFC history. The last time was UFC 187. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he told you what the temperature outside the arena was. Yeah. Was the attendance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Jay Petrie. One of the smartest guys in the sport, and oh yeah, absolutely. There, there, there's no such thing as a casual offhand comment to, to the man. He, he's going to give no. you answers. Yeah. You're going to get educated. Uh, having said that, the the salient statistic here is that there are 14 fights on this card. Shall we dive into them? Sure. All right. At least as currently constituted, what looks like the opening bout of UFC 285 is a 155-pound matchup between Esteban Ribovich and the debuting short-notice Loic Rajabov. Ribovich, the 26-year-old Argentinian, is making his UFC debut. He fought on the Contender Series back in August, knocking out Thomas Paul in 90 seconds. Uh, 
that brings him right into the show where he had been scheduled to take on Camuela Kirk. Kirk dropped off about a week out and in steps the guy who apparently is just destined to come in second forever as it is two-time PFL runner-up Loic Rajabov who now comes in as the second ever fighter from Tajikistan to fight in the UFC in just one week after his countrymen. There you go. They're taking over. You, you mentioned it. You mentioned it on the, on the uh, recap show that uh, how big their population is. They're taking over. Yeah, they're, they're taking over. You know, uh, Nurulo Alayev debuted, had a successful debut at UFC Fight Night 220, the UFC production panned several times to this literal stadium full of people going bananas for the first guy uh, from their country ever to fight in the UFC. One week later comes the best fighter from Tajikistan. Again, a guy who we'll get to him in a minute, but on talent is probably a top 25 guy. And he's going to get like a hot cup of coffee and a hearty handshake for being the yeah. second guy from Tajikistan. ever to <laughs> fight great, the they, pan, they, they pan to the same audience, the same arena. And there's like one guy, <laughs> <laughs> one guy chair for him. Oh man. P- poor guy. Uh, <clears throat> I, I say poor guy, but it's gotta be a great feeling. Cause he is someone who he had been in all three seasons of PFL so far, 2018, 2019, uh, 2021, then out, you know, 2022, went back and uh, fought for Eagle FC in, in Russia once. But, or no, it wasn't even in Russia. It was uh, one of the Eagle FC cards that was run by Khabib Nurmagomedov. Like he yeah, fought, yeah. yeah, he fought, he so fought Udo in Florida. commentating and chill sunning. And- yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, so he fought just once last year, but kind of hit his ceiling in PFL against the man of destiny of each of those seasons. Uh, had a year of wandering in the wilderness. Here he gets the short notice call up uh, to the UFC, probably because there were several Killcliff MMA guys on this card, and it was just very easy to say, "Hey, can you get uh, another seat and another suitcase onto that plane, Henry Hooft?" And he said, "Absolutely, I can." Keith, I'm going to toss this one uh, to you first. One, I, yeah, I'd like to know, obviously, Rajabov, he's a 21-fight uh, veteran, bit more of a, a known quantity. But uh, let me know what kind of upside you see in Ribovich and who you think uh, gets it done here. Yeah, when, so when I um... – I, I kind of write down all the fights before I start my tape study, and I kind of have like an order of how I want to watch them in case I run out of time. You know, kind of the most important down to the least. So when uh, his fight with Kirk got canceled, I kind of crossed it out and then kind of forgot about it to check back. Uh, so I found out uh, I don't know maybe an hour ago that these guys these guys were fighting uh, when I was trying to look at the order that we were going to go over. Uh, so I had to like rushed my tape study so uh not too confident in my pick um like i'm gonna butcher his, his name i know it's 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 not pronounced how it looks it's rejoined or something like that how, how do i say uh, R- rajabov rajabov yeah yeah see that's yeah I'm, I'm way off um yeah he's got he's got a lot of experience uh, especially, you know, high-level experience fighting the PFL, fighting Eagles MMA. Um, he did well in the PFL. I mean, he, he made, you mentioned he made it to the finals. Um, had, you know, was competitive, like, against um, 
Ranfolo, he had like a competitive matchup against him. Uh, he's a pressure fighter who marches down his foe, throws a, a, a lot of power shots, tends to kind of wing his overhand right, uh, he'll throw some spinning attacks. He will drop his hands, and that's because of his style, and he'll throw some naked leg kicks, uh, which was uh, how he was getting pieced up in his, you know, in his last finals matchup. Uh, he will overthrow, but he, but it's actually a thing that works for him because he almost punches himself into closer position where he can wrestle. Uh, he's a good wrestler, really nice entries, uh, some really slick body lock throws. I mean, go back to his last fight, he, he tossed uh, Zach Zane in like this, like legendary throw. I mean, it was fantastic. Uh, looks to advance when he hits the ground, mean ground and pound. He has a submission right. He's got five subs. Uh, head attacks a little bit of a specialty for him. Uh, he likes guillotines. Uh, he hit a guillotine in his last fight. The, he's taking this fight on sh- short notice. So I really wonder about his cardio, but this is a guy who's gone 25 minutes, uh, and he's also a, a veteran, so he kind of knows what kind of shape he needs to be in. Uh, re- I, I kind of combined what I was talking about. Uh, Rasiboff uh, yeah. and Rabinovich, I kind of mixed their, their, their names up there for a second. Uh, Esteban, uh, he's, a good, he's a good athlete. He can fight out of both stances. A lot of volume, uh, tax with combinations, throws a lot of power shots, but he is wild. I mean, reckless, just throwing bombs, coming right at him. He did it on the contender series. He did it on the fights before that, which leaves him open to be countered. I mean, even the contender series, he got this beautiful, beautiful knockout, but he was ta- getting tagged up. He was, he was hurt himself in that just a brief, I think it was like 90 seconds. He does have some serious power, though. Um, when he settles down, he, has, he can work a nice crisp jab. Uh, he loves throwing flying knees. He's not a wrestler. I'd say he's more of like a BJJ grappler. But he has a submission threat. He's got a couple subs on his record. Uh, he likes, uh, as Laura Sanka pointed out, he likes to go to the Kimura. It's a little bit of a specialty. Uh, this is a last-minute addition. Uh, as, as I mentioned, so I kind of had to rush. Uh, but I'm going to go with um, the PFL star, Uh Ratsiboff, he he's faced a better competition. He did pretty well in the PFL. I think he can land some takedowns when Esteban gets crazy, uh, kind of helping get into the clinch or, or get on the hips easier. I think in all those crazy scrambles, I think um, Loic is gonna he's gonna lock in a submission. I'm gonna say he does in the very first round, uh, guillotine or or dark choke or something like that. So uh, give me the PFL standout first round submission. I'm with you here. Uh, And I should have mentioned off the top, this fight was made recently enough that I can't find any reliable odds for it. I'll be interested to know what they are once they're posted. But I expect that Rajabov will probably come in as a slight to moderate favorite here. And if it weren't on such short notice and it weren't a guy in Rajabov that hasn't actually fought at lightweight since 2021, because, you know, his one fight in Eagle FC was at a catch weight, even though they were both nominal lightweights, I think he'd probably be even a bigger favorite uh, for all the reasons you mentioned. Uh, regardless of what the listing tail of the tape things are underneath Keith's head and mine, as we speak, I expect that Roger Bob is going to look a lot more than one inch shorter than Ribovich. Uh, we have him listed at five foot nine, but when I've seen him fight, he is a little tank of a man. Uh, like he gave up significant height and reach to guys like Natan Schulte and uh, Hausmann Fio, neither of whom are, well, to keep it relevant to this card, neither of them is exactly Jalen Turner. Uh <clears throat> And uh, Ribovich is another guy that's kind of like that. He's, you know, he's a tall, rangy, uh, lightweight at just 26 years old. He's probably not into like his full, like man strength. 
so I expect that Rajabov, his whole thing of just kind of wading into range behind like giant Vanderlei Silva haymakers is probably going to work for him here. Uh, Ribovich, he's undefeated so far, but he's wild. Uh, he doesn't use his height and, and reach like you would expect for a guy that is kind of tall and, and lengthy for a lightweight. And once Rajabov gets his hands on him, I do think he's probably going to be able to get like ragdoll type takedowns if he wants from there. I, I mean, I'm I'm picturing in my head Ribovich either trying to defend takedowns with like a Kimura grip or trying to like defend himself on the bottom and work from the bottom, like trying to work for a Kimura as just a bigger, stronger, older, more experienced man just pounds on him or or hurls him through the air. That's what I'm kind of seeing in my mind's eye here. I wouldn't be surprised by the first round submission here either, but I'm going to say that uh, Rubovitz makes it to the second round. Uh, give me Loic Rajabov by TKO on the ground in round two. Ben, you didn't want to call up James Krause, find out what the odds are for this fight. <laughs> <laughs> Too soon, man. Julian Marquez is on this card. <laughs> Poor Rubovitz was going to fight Camuela Kirk, who's not very good. And he's getting, he's getting a totally... Uh, Totally different fighter. Thing. Oh, yeah. To- yeah. To- I totally agree. Oh, wait. I was going to get this, like, the stereotypical Hawaiian brawler, and now I'm going to get this, like, stocky, like, foreguard uh, from Tajikistan yeah. who's going to, like, launch me through the air. Great. Yeah. Somehow he's related to Habib, <laughs> even though he's not from Dagestan. <laughs> not even the same country, but, you yeah. know, they have the same barber. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's one barber in that entire part of the world, and all he has is a that's, foreguard. That's You're just getting beard. <laughs> Hair, everything. You, you get the foreguard and, and you like it. Next up, we head to the men's bantamweight division for a matchup between Damon Blackshear and Farid Basharat. Blackshear, the 28-year-old North Carolina native by way of New Mexico, is 12-4-1 overall. He is 0-1 uh, since joining the UFC as a short-notice replacement, uh, stepping in to fight Yusef Zalal. That was last August at UFC on ESPN. Vera versus Cruz uh, fought to a majority draw there and, uh, you know, earned himself a, at least another chance or two in the octagon. His uh, second chance comes right now, and it comes against the younger uh, of the uh, Basharat brothers. Farid, younger uh, brother of a fellow hot prospect, Javid Basharat, 25 years old, also Afghanistani by way of London, England. He is a perfect 9-0 in his mixed martial arts career. He won on the Contender Series last September, uh, taking a unanimous decision over Alain Bogoso, and uh, gets his debut here. He is one of those aforementioned gang of massive favorites on this card. Basharat currently coming in at minus 500, Blackshear plus 350. Keith, I... Uh, said off the top, there are a number of fighters on this car that they're raw, but they seem to have all the yeah. potential in the world. Uh, I at least said, and I think you agreed with me, that uh, Blackshear is is a guy who probably does have UFC-level talent, even sure. if he's not a future top 10 guy. Uh, Basharat is a massive favorite here for you know understandable reasons. Let me know how you think this fight goes, and just off-the-cuff assessment, which Basharat brother do you think uh, has higher upside? Oh, that that's tough. That's tough. Um, I mean, we're talking about two very different weight they're classes. Both really good. They're both really, really good. Yeah. Um, I'd go with the older brother. 
Um, we've seen him in the UFC. He's looked spectacular so far. Um, but uh, Jabrin, uh, and I apologize if I'm saying his name wrong. Uh, he, he, when I've seen him, he looks really good too. So yeah, uh, yeah, this is uh, this is exciting. Uh, but he's got, I think he's got a uh, you know a a stiff test in his UFC debut. Um, Blackshear. He, he's a good athlete. Uh, he, he doesn't move a lot. He's more of like a Muay Thai striker who stands right in front of his opponents with his high guard defense, but he's got some quick hands. Uh, he can get a little wild. Uh, um, that's because, um, you know, his hands kind of get outside a little bit instead of staying tight. Uh, he throws a lot of kicks. Likes his, I like his deep kicks. He could throw some calf kicks, some spinning attacks. Uh, he will wrestle. He isn't very technical there, uh, but he uses his athleticism to win some scrambles. Weaker takedown defense, but um, I mean, you go back to his his last fight. He found some pretty slick back takes. Now he he will like rush a submission, and, but he's got eight submissions in his career. He was tacking submissions off his back in his last fight. Uh, he does struggle to get back up, and he did gas a little bit against Yusuf Salal. But in fantasy, he took that fight in like days notice. I think it was like three days or something like that. Uh, Basharat, he's only twenty five, so. Uh, that's another reason why it's probably a tough question because they're they're both young. So, um, very poised striker, calculated, good volume, uh, dangerous in, in both southpaw and orthodox stance. He's accurate. He uses feints really well to set up his shots. Uh, I like that he doubles up the jab, which we see a lot in boxing. But we don't see a lot in MMA. Uh, he rips the body. Good footwork. Good calf kicks. Uh, he he really likes the calf kicks from the southpaw position. Uh, defensively, he's got a little couple things I'd like to clean up. One, he stands a little bit tall. He also doesn't have one punch fight ending power. That's not really his thing. Um, and that's because he doesn't really sit on his punches. He, he kind of stands up tall, but he's a good wrestler. He gets inside, uh, looks for like snatch singles, uh, good top control, really impressive ground and pound. He has a submission already. He's got five subs, uh, and I've seen him in fights go hard all 15 minutes. So Carter's not an issue. Uh, Blackshear isn't a bad talent, but Basharat looks special, just like his brother. Uh, I think he puts pressure on Blackshear on the feet. I think it, the pressure allows him to get inside where he can land some takedowns. I say he goes to work. I think he, I think this fight is going to look a lot like his Dana White contender series fight where he batters his foe with some hard ground and pound. Uh, Basharat's, yeah, he's really talented, and um, Blackshear's tough. So I think Blackshear might find a way to make it to a decision, but I think it's going to be Basharat in a blowout decision win, maybe like a 10-8 round in there. Yeah, I, I see this one basically the, the same as you do. I'm interested to see how Basharat deals with somebody that's going to have a decided size advantage on him. Uh, I mean, Blackshear fought at featherweight for most of his way up. I mean, the guy fought for uh, CFFC titles at 145. I mean, uh, I know he fought uh, when he fought Pat Sabatini. It was for a title. I don't remember whether the Danny Sabatello fight was, but Sabatello is another like good size, uh, you know, featherweight. And it, he's going to be bigger than than Basharat. But I, I'm with you. Like just Blackshear is a solid talent that I wouldn't be surprised to see him still in the UFC two years from now. Whereas two years from now, I wouldn't be surprised to see Basharat fighting for a, a title or, you know, in the title picture, either in this weight class or, or the ne- next weight class up. Uh, it's going to be an interesting little while here while we see which of these uh, brothers turns into the better prospect, turns into a contender first. Fareed is younger, but not by much. I think, I think they're less than two years apart in age and they both have, 
a little bit of like you can see the little bit of star potential charisma kind of coming off them. Uh, it it does matter. They're they're both like fluent in English and kind of sassy and snappy on the mic. Uh, there is a little bit of showmanship in in their fight style. Yeah, give me give me Basharat in a dominant performance here and one. I, I mean, I don't know if we get like overt showboating, but one that really does kind of serve as a showcase for him. And he'll probably have an, a nice little moment on the mic afterwards. He is not a guy that will be stuttering and unable to come up with names he wants to fight next. That is not the Basharat brothers. So, yeah, give me uh, one more step on the road to stardom for the younger Basharat brother here. Uh, I, I'm also with you. The dominant decision where maybe we get a 10-8 round. Next up on the UFC 285 prelims, we have a strawweight matchup between Jessica Penne and Tabitha Ricci. It, this is a fight that not only was already scheduled, but got as far as fight week, and Keith and I already previewed. This was meant to take place on the Dern versus Jan fight night card all the way back last October. We previewed it at that time. Keith, has anything happened in the intervening five, five and a half months to make you change your mind on that? <laughs> No, I think I feel even more confident in, in Richie now. Uh, well, I was going to say, I'm going to just plug in that footage right here so that you can watch it. But a couple things to update. The odds are now uh, Richie around minus 225, Penne around plus 180 or so. And okay. Penne is no longer 39. She is now a nice round 40. So if anything, whatever I said on that preview probably involved Ricci throwing Penny around some it goes double now just it's six months later for a woman who turned 40 in in the interim and has already had some lengthy layoffs so yeah uh sit back watch this old like grainy sepia toned VHS footage you know from six months ago and we'll be back in a minute speaking of the D uh, first off is a strawweight matchup between Jessica Penne and Tabitha Ricci Penne, the 39-year-old Californian, is 14-6 and six overall. She is 3-4 and four in the UFC. Uh, worth noting that she took four full years off between 2017 and 2021 and came back rather unexpectedly, at least if you ask me. I like you said took years off. You mean he was, she was suspended? Okay, yes. It's like, uh, it's like a guy goes to jail for 30 years. I took 30 years off. <laughs> Okay, she was in. She no, was in. No, Harold. No, Harold. Uh, you went to jail for armed robbery, for bank robbery. I mean, I, I feel bad I just, just classifying it. Get my life together. I mean, I, I do feel a little bad just classifying it as just straight. I mean, yes, she she tested positive. Uh, she got a long USADA suspension, but it ended up being something where if she'd been had that same test in like 2020 the consequences would have been very different there were weirdnesses about her case but yeah, yeah she, she had a usada enforced vacation for four years came back and uh frankly experienced surprising success she uh beat lupita godinez and carolina kovalkiewicz right out of the gate the uh fun came to an end back in july where uh Emily Ducote came back to the UFC and kind of put a stamp on Penne. That was at UFC on ABC, Ortega versus Rodriguez. She'll try to get back to winning ways against Ricci. 
The 27-year-old Brazilian who goes by Baby Shark is 7-1 overall. She's 2-1 since joining the UFC uh, out of a couple of Brazilian promotions and LFA. She lost her debut to Manon Fior. That was, I believe, it was short notice for her. And either way, it was out of her weight class against a, a monster of a fighter in Fior. Since then, she's looked great, uh, taking unanimous decisions over Maria Oliveira and Poliana Viana. The most recent of those, the Viana fight, was UFC Fight Night Holm versus Vieira back in May. Odds on this one do favor Ricci pretty heavily. She's minus 220, Penne plus 180. Uh, Keith, on a card that, I mean, we've got Randy Brown versus Francisco Trinaldo on this card. Uh, we've got Sadiq Yusuf versus Don Shanus. Even with those fights, on this card, I think this might be the fight where we see the starkest difference in speed and athleticism between the two competitors, uh, talking about Ricci and Penne. Tell me if you agree with that, and, and tell me who you think wins this one. Well, I, I, I'm assuming you're, you're agreeing with the odds makers with a, with a statement like that. Uh, oh, l let me throw in one note. Uh, this was originally supposed to be uh, Tabitha Ricci versus Cheyenne Vlismas. Uh, Vlismas had to withdraw. Penne's in. It's not super short notice. Like she had actual training for this, but they made it like you know within the last month or so. Yeah, um, I, I'm not as high on Ricci as, as apparently the odds makers are, and you are. Um, but she is fighting Jessica Penne, so uh, like I, I if you I don't check the odds. I, I purposely don't check the odds because I don't want to be influenced by them. But I I, I would have guessed that. Richie was the favorite. I would have guessed maybe like negative one forty. Like I didn't. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't think as as big of a favorite as this is. And I mean, Penne. She. I'll say this about her. She. She's. She's well rounded. Like she doesn't have like a glaring like. Well, this is the weakness in her. I mean, her. It's probably her just her overall athleticism. I think is. But I mean, she's she's a high output striker. That she you know she likes to press the action. She marches forward. Uh, she likes head movement. She's kind of easy to hit, which which is obviously an issue. Um, but she does she does a lot of things right. She keeps her strikes inside tight. She has a long jab. Uh, she lacks power. She's she's more of an arm puncher, uh, more of a point fighter than than you know a big big header. Uh, but she she likes to throw some a lot of kicks because of her size. Like she's a, one of the taller ones for the, in the division. Um, uh, she does throw some naked leg kicks. It kind of leaves her open her chin open for her to get hit. Uh, but she has those long legs, and because of those long legs, that targets we saw that in her last fight, Emily Dakota like destroyed her with with leg kicks. But it, she can wrestle a little bit. She can get inside the clinch. She she can kind of grind in there. She can get some upper body takedowns. She will shoot for takedowns. Though I wouldn't call her a strong wrestler. She's more of like a catch your leg and take you down that way. But she's a Brazilian just do black belt. Uh, she does have some submission, some submissions. She got eight submissions in her career. So uh, she she's not an easy out. <laughs> um, Richie is small. She's small for the women. She's like five foot one. She she looks like an animal. Yeah. Uh, as far as so striking, she's a boxer. She can fight at both stances, uh, but she's a pocket boxer. She needs to get inside. Uh, she has a little Dan Hennison in her, where she kind of throws her overhand right a lot, a lot of her power shots. Uh, she also rolls with punches, which never looks good to the judges. But I agree that she's got some speed in there, uh, and and she's really good in the clinch because she's a judo black belt. She likes to grind in the clinch. She's got some good uh, good takedowns, some upper body takedowns. Uh, she, she showed in her last fight that she can shoot some entries she does have two submissions when and the, the most impressive thing about her grappling is that she she avoided submission attempts from Pollyanna viana which is which is a good accomplishment 
yeah, I actually think this is a much tougher fight than than the odds make us say, but I, I think Richie is the more technically sound fighter. She's given up four inches in height and five inches in reach, which which will be tough to get around. Uh, and and probably even more in inches and in, in, in leg. You know, I know they don't measure the legs, but if she can get beyond that reach, she's the better inside fighter. Uh, I'm leaning that way. I think she gets some takedowns, gets some top control. So give me Richie by decision. Yeah, I'm I'm with you here. I, I just Penny, you know, she she hung around for a while and, you know, even made it to a title shot as a kind of low power out fighter uh, and, you know, got absolutely chewed up by the perfect, relatively low power out fighter in uh, Ioanni on Jacek. But <clears throat> since she's been back, I, I think she's shown surprising signs of life considering how long she was gone. And as you pointed out why she was gone. Um, but I think the Dakota fight kind of showed where the cap is on, on this little feel good return story. And for someone who turns 40 in, in January, you know, like I, I can't imagine she's going to get faster or sharper between her last fight and this one. You pointed out Richie is small for the division. I think that's probably going to define her her ceiling at 115 because while, you know, she like is bouncy and quick, she's not a super physical powerhouse. I mean, she's pretty strong, but she's not Jessica Andrade in there. Uh, but I do think she's going to have enough to get inside on Penne. I don't think Penne's power is going to be enough to dissuade her. Like if she has to eat uh, a jab and, and a right cross to, to get inside, I think she's going to be able to do that. And then whether she chooses to set up boxing inside or, you know, try to get some body locks and trips, you know, shove her into the fence and work for takedowns from there. Uh, I think she's going to kind of have her way with her. It won't be a sizzling fight, but give me Ricci by decision as well. Next up here at UFC 285. Okay, I'm not saying that that Penne versus Ricci fight was postponed a long time, Keith, but at the time they originally were going to make that fight, Leomana Martinez was 15 years old. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Next up at men's Bantamweight, we have Leomana Martinez. How old was uh, Rojas' kid? He wasn't even born yet. Yeah, like no. he, was, he was just a, a sparkle in his daddy's pocket. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. At, at Bantamweight, we got Leomana Martinez versus Cameron Simon. Uh, Martinez, the 26-year-old Houstonian, is 10-3 and overall. He is 2-1 and since joining the UFC as a veteran of the fifth season of Dana White's Contender Series, where he lost. He got uh, choked out by Draco Rodriguez, went back, uh, won and defended the Fury Fighting Championship 135-pound crown, and got the call-up in 2021. Since then, he has uh, beaten Guido Canetti, lost to Ronnie Lawrence, and beaten Brandon Davis. All three of those fights by decision, both of the wins by split decision. So uh, certainly looking to keep the winning ways going and maybe put a more emphatic stamp on things. Standing in his way will be Simon. The first of two South African fighters on this card, the younger by far, a uh, 22-year-old undefeated prospect, is 1-0 since joining the UFC out of the sixth season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he knocked out Josh Kim uh, last August, debuted in December at UFC 282, and knocked out Stephen Koslow in the third round uh, under a hail of knees and punches. He is looking to make it two in a row in the UFC, uh, stamp himself as, you know, one of the brighter of the undefeated prospects in the promotion right now. And he's a comfortable favorite to do so. Uh, Simon, minus 250, Martinez, plus 210. 
Keith, these are two guys who came to the UFC as finishing machines, specifically knockout artists. Yep. It, it has carried over to the top level for one of these gentlemen, at least for the small sample size we have, not so much for the other. And it pains me to say that because uh, Mana Martinez is a close local guy to me. I've met and, you know, shaken hands with his dad numerous times. I featured him on Sherdog's Prospect Watch like four years ago before he even won the Fury title. Uh, So I'm happy to see him in the UFC. But thus far, he hasn't really been able to he hasn't really been able to show what he could do at, at the regional level. Uh, you know, he's a very tall, lanky uh, Bantamweight. Very calm, fluid, karate-influenced style. He's, you know, definitely a hands-at-the-hips type, type striker who's looking to counter. Uh, he's used to having fight-ending knockout power in all eight limbs. You can tell because he is sometimes patient to a fault. Uh, lets himself be pressured, lets himself be put on the back foot. Even on the regional level, he was susceptible to being taken down and kind of held down and, and controlled by physically stronger fighters who maybe weren't as skilled overall, but just were kind of able to push him around. Uh, that's, I mean, that really hasn't changed at the UFC level. Uh, you know, I don't think Ronnie Lawrence is ne- necessarily a more skilled fighter, but just, he was bigger, older, and dictated his fight on Martinez. And even fighters that Martinez really is much more skilled than, like Guido Canetti, uh, he's just kind of struggled to to find that kind of form at the UFC level. At age 26, he's got time to do so, but uh, certainly, like, the the highlight reel prospect shine is off. And you can tell that because they're kind of already getting ready to feed him to the next generation of Sterling prospect in Simon. And much as it pains to say me about a fighter that I like a lot, you and I have both interviewed the guy. Uh, Simon is exactly the kind of like high pressure savage that is kind of built to give Martinez fits, at least as we've seen uh, Martinez go. I'm, I'm interested to see, you know, if Martinez has come up with any other responses to kind of being put on his back foot by a more aggressive come forward striker, because I like that's certainly going to be Simon. But until I see it, I'm going to assume that he's still not prepared to deal with it. Uh, he's not going to have the the speed advantage he's used to having. He'll have the reach advantage, but thus far he hasn't really been able to leverage that against UFC level bantamweights. And given also the the ongoing instability of his training situation, because Martinez and Adrian Yanez were the two top guys at Metro Fight Club when Salsalese died. And they responded two different ways. Adrian Yanez basically took over Metro Fight Club. Like he's a 28-year-old man that's running a fight team. Uh, and then he, on the rise himself. Uh, on the rise himself. He's I mean, he's one of the hottest prospects at Bantamweight. If if it weren't for like a crowd of people at the top 10 and then like Sean O'Malley kind of just bulldozing all of the, the, the series hype ahead of him. Like Giannis would be one of the more hyped prospects in the UFC, but O'Malley just, he, he shines so bright that uh, he, he's gonna, he's gonna eat up all that spotlight for the foreseeable future. But at any rate, you know, he's 
basically running that fight team, doing his own training with Eve Edwards. Martinez took the other approach. He he hit the road and he went to Glory MMA and Fitness, which at the time seemed like an inspired call yeah. and yeah. very quickly turned out not to be. I it Martinez is in the phase of his career in terms of age, in terms of physical maturation, in terms of professional development, that he could should be making enormous strides from fight to fight to shore up weaknesses, to hone his strengths. And I just, I, I'm not sure I have faith that that's actually happening right now. So give me Simon here. And Martinez has only been finished once. And, you know, he got triangled, uh, you know, and just put all the way to sleep. But if he's going to get knocked out, it's going to be someone like Simon to do it, who could do it on the feet, you know, or it would be comfortable pounding him out on the ground if it goes there. I'm not picking it, but I, I'm picking this to be probably an ugly outing for Martinez where Simon wins all three rounds and there's some danger of a finish at some point. Yeah. Um, you talk about where Martinez should go. Like he should go to AKA, like go, go wrestle with, uh, Islam Makashev and like those guys, like that's what he should or, be doing. Dude, or do what Yanez did go up to Sarah Longo and just hang out with, uh, Aljamain Sterling and Marab Dwalishvili. Yeah, he's insane. I mean, that, the only problem is is if, if he's right in the same yeah. weight classes. Yeah, yeah. they've already. Uh, got I mean, that, Martinez time. not so much is the case, but like yeah. Giannis is. A, it is, but um, how far is is Houston from? Uh, and I apologize, I'm saying this wrong. Katie or Caddy? Katie? Oh, Katie's a suburb of Houston. Katie's like, oh, okay, like that makes 10, mile, ten miles from downtown. Yeah, because when you talk to Mona Martinez. And, and I know you like him a lot. I like him a lot too. It's it, he. It's like talking to Sage Northcott. He's called you sir the whole time. He's mm-hmm. like that's 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 why I was asking that question because I know that's where uh, Sage Northcott is. Uh, Martinez. He, he's a southpaw. Who's he's a very good striker. He's a slipper up guy, as you mentioned. He uses feints really well to draw out his opponent's attack so he can counter. Uh, he, you mentioned he hangs his hands low, but it's a little bit of a bait too. It's like it's a karate style, but he's also baiting the guy to, to kind of. Swing over swing at his head. Uh, he's got good vision to just slide himself uh, and, you know, slide himself out of range, but also leave him open to the counter. His pull left or his counter left is really his best blow. Uh, he, he likes throwing that uh, left hand over the, like an orthodox fighter straight right, uh, which is dangerous because if they beat you to the punch, you're going to get attacked. But if not, they don't, they don't even see the punch uh, coming. Uh, he, I like that he does same side attacks. Like he'll throw a left kick and follow it up with a with a left hand, which is it's unusual, but it's it's something that not many people are ready for. He has some serious power, as you mentioned. Um, he can overthrow his shots sometimes, which which is a concern. Uh, I love that he works the body. Uh, he tosses out some spinning attacks. I, I love his high kick. He's got some hard kicks really everywhere. But like the bane of his existence is the dude. He he can't wrestle. Like, uh, he's a weak defensive wrestler. He will jump guillotine instead of sprawling, which is an issue. Uh, he does have a good guillotine to his credit, but if he when he gets put on bottom, he really struggles to get back up. And even in his last fight against Brandon Davis, a guy that he probably should have starched, he gassed out a little bit against Brandon Davis, and, and it was a much closer fight than than I think both of us expected. Uh, uh, Samen, 
He's only 22 years old. Like, you got to love that. He's a southpaw. Uh, he also fights out of both stances. Yeah, he tends to stand directly in front of his opponent, like very Muay Thai style. Uh, so he gets a hit a little bit more than I would like. But again, he's 22. So that's something like he could be a defensive wizard in his next fight. It wouldn't surprise me at all. Um, high output. He tacks with combos. Really sits on his punches. His, his straight left is probably his best punch. Uh, his check right hook is pretty good too. Uh, plus power for a guy who's only 22 years old, which is surprising. He throws a lot of kicks, some calf kicks. He loves that Alexander Slamenko like spinning back kick. He can wrestle though. He's a good. He's good at winning scrambles. Uh, I'd say weaker defensive wrestler, uh, and he, he is a submission threat. He only has one. I mean, he only has one sub on his career, but he got a couple out as an amateur too. So uh, he can catch a submission. Uh, and I like his cardio. He doesn't stop. So as far as the prediction goes, Martinez is a really sharp striker, but his defensive wrestling is just it's non-existent. And I have a hard time picking him until I see him fix that. And I can't imagine Simon, who's a good striker, and he might want to test it out on the feet, but I can't see him seeing that and knowing he has an advantage if he just turns into a wrestling match and just not going to it. So I say Simon gets some takedowns, and I just he just rides him out to a unanimous decision win. The parade of undefeated prospects continues at UFC 285 as we head to the welterweight division for a matchup between Ian Gary and Kenan Song. Gary, the 25-year-old Irishman, is a perfect 10-0 overall. He is 3-0 since joining the UFC a little over a year ago as the outgoing Cage Warriors welterweight champ. He has beaten in that time Jordan Williams, Darian Weeks, and Gabe Green. The most recent of those, the green fight, was at UFC 276 last July, a fight which Gary won by a pretty one-sided unanimous decision. He's going to look to make it four in a row, and uh, he's going to look to do it at the expense of Song. The 32-year-old Chinese fighter is 18-6 and six overall. He is 4-2 and two in the UFC. He is coming off a loss. Uh, he got knocked out by Max Griffin in the first round uh, at UFC on ESPN Brunson versus Holland. That's all the way back in March of 2021. So coming back off of a quick loss and a two-year layoff, he is unsurprisingly one of the bigger underdogs on the card. Gary comes in at minus 600, Song at plus 400. Keith, uh, Ian Gary, nicknamed The Future. Always a dangerous nickname to take for yourself. You risk flying too yeah. close to the sun uh, and and melting your wings. Yeah, you know. Note that Macy Barber is still in the UFC, yeah. and that's that uh, nickname has not aged well for her. It's better than like the kid or the, the young assassin. assassin. <laughs> yeah, like, even worse. But dude, uh, yeah, forty like forty three year old Melvin Gillard was in a grappling competition down here in Houston of all things uh, okay. last year comes in at like, you know, 183 pounds. <laughs> Did he get knocked out of grappling somehow? <laughs> <laughs> well, the funny thing is I'd like, and you, you remember as well as I did, as well as I do that once upon yeah. a time, like he was the guy that either knocked you out or got rear naked choked. Like, you know, yeah. shortly thereafter it's, you'll be happy to know that he has retained his ability to lose by rear naked choke. Okay. Uh, but he he is no longer a, a young assassin. Um, anyway, Ian Gary, 22 years old in a division where, generally speaking, super young guys don't rocket up the rankings. The, the whole 
you know, Shavkat, Rachmanov, Hamzat, Shemaev thing that we've got going on right now is more of a new development. Generally, 170 is, is a division where guys are like 32 and hitting their stride. But Gary's looked like a world beater so far, granted against not the best level of competition. Uh, do you like the, the song matchup as a, a decent next test for him? Or should he yeah. have gotten something bigger than this? No, no. I like how they're actually working. Because, I mean, you think about how deep that division is. You take a guy like Leon Edwards, a current champion, the amount of wins that guy had to get to earn the title shot. And again, sometimes it was just wrong timing. And, and sometimes it goes quicker. And so, you know, I understand that. But generally speaking, you got to go on a I mean, Kamar Usman had to go on a run. Same with Leon Edwards, and they were older and um, much more polished than than Gary is. So I like I like the, the you know slow, steady uh, road they're giving this guy. Uh, he's grown on me. I'll say that about he's he's really grown on me. When he first came in, I wasn't I wasn't I don't see if I was a hater, but I wasn't like ready to crown the guy the next big thing. Uh, but he's he's looked really good. He's a long and lengthy fighter, very athletic, moves well. He's elusive, very poised on his feet, technical. He understands range and, and uses it really well. He's very relaxed in his striking. That's what really stands out to me. He's got some fast hands. He's accurate, uh, very slip and rip kind of guy, good head movement. Uh, he needs to have good head movement because he hangs his hands low, so he really relies on it. Uh, and for the time being, it's, it hasn't been an issue. Good volume. He works behind a long jab. Uh, he attacks with combos. He's gaining power, and it's something I think we'll continue to see. I mean, they go back to last fight. Uh, Gabe Green, he was hurt. Well, that was yeah, that was the last fight. Gabe Green, yeah. he was hurting Gabe Green uh, a couple times. Uh, I love that he's adding step in knees, and he was doing that in his last fight. He was crashing the pocket first with a step in knee, which you know I love. It's like that's my favorite tool in MMA. Uh, a great kicking game, nice inside leg kicks. Uh, he mixes in the calf kicks. Uh, he follows right up with a with a high kick, so he'll go like low then high. Uh, he has a judo background. He can sneak in some takedowns. Uh, good top control, strong ground and pound. Uh, he he does attack submissions. He really likes the like the head attacks. Um, I, I always explain what the head attacks are, but you guys know what I'm talking about. Uh, the Darce Jokes, Anacondas, Guillotines. Um, he can be a little too overconfident in his grappling. Um, I've seen him lose some grappling positions uh, and even you know, going back a couple years ago, but um, we haven't seen that so far in the UFC. And another thing I love about this guy is he's a builder. As the fight goes on, his output gets higher. He gets stronger. His confidence builds. He starts feeling himself. Uh, now move over to, to Kanan Song. Or Song Kanan. He, he's a he's a strong guy for the weight class. He's he's uh, he's a boxer uh, with I'd say plus power. Very stiff jab. His straight right is his his money punch. His left hook is pretty good too. Uh, he throws some hard kicks, like some spinning attacks. Uh, likes a high kick, very physically strong. You look at the guy. The guy's the guy's he's he's a brute. I mean, he's he's he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't miss the gym. He's in there all the time. He's not, he's not like this guy. It's just in January, you know. Uh, he defends takedowns with a guillotine, which which I absolutely hate. Um, Derek Krantz picked him up and slammed him, which which is not a good look. But he did almost guillotine him, so I'll give him credit for that. And he's hard to hold down. He works back up to his feet. Uh, He's got good cardio. Go back to the cran fight. Like he was pushing, pushing hard in the third round. But after his last fight, you got to be a little worried about his chin. I mean, Max Griffin knocked him out cold quickly, um, and it was one of these ones where it took him a while to wake up. He was knocked out dead, and then Griffin hit him with a. And not, not saying this in a dirty sense, he like knocked him out and was going with a grind and pound and just caught him right in the back of the head. 
Um, Gary's a guy that I thought was a good addition to the UFC, but nothing spectacular. I'm changing my opinion on him. He, he has some serious skills. I think he's a top guy in the future. I'm not saying he's going to win the title at 170 because of how good it is, but um, if he does, like you said at the beginning, if he's a champion one day, it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, I think Gary's better than Song everywhere. He might not have the physical strength of Song, so this might he might be the one fight where he might get a little bullied a little bit, and it, it, it could be one of those like we look back on and be like, wow, that's a bad loss. Um, so it's not out of the realm of possibility, but – I'm just going to go with the skills. I think he styles on him. I think he gets a finish. Give me Gary by second round TKO. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm with you in, in the broad strokes here. I think I was probably a little quicker to jump on the, the Gary train. Just he, he seemed like something special to me uh, early on. Uh, and, I was almost glad that this, that he was taking place at welterweight. Cause it's a division where he, there was never going to be a need to rush him to, to more of a matchup than he was ready for. I mean, we're going to talk about Shavkat Rachmanov later here and look how slow the UFC has been able to roll him. If, if Shavkat Rachmanov were a 185 or a 205, he, I mean, he probably would have already had an unsuccessful title shot by now. Uh, just, but because they're in a division where you got to win five, six, seven fights in a row to break into the, the top 10, you know, he, he's getting the chance to develop under the bright lights in a way that you don't in a lot of divisions. Uh, <clears throat> I love that you pointed out that uh, he's got that step in knee now. I mean, not only is it a great offensive weapon when he wants to initiate, but as a tall guy, you know, that wants to strike, it's also provo- uh, provides a nice form of alternate takedown defense. Uh, I-, I love that in her uh, commentary table debut in the UFC a couple weeks ago, Laura Sanko, she introduced a, she introduced a term that I'm going to use from now on. Uh, she said, advertise the price of admission. And she was talking specifically about uh, intercepting strikes on fighters who, who want to change levels and shoot on you. Just show them early on how much it, it's going to cost you to, to, to get there. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I've said for a while that half of takedown defense is making the guy pay for trying. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, it, I, say it, it all, I say it all the time. They shoot it, on you. You need to make a pay. In yeah, wrestling, some, too. In wrestling, yeah. too. And, yeah. You got a front headlock, a sprawl. You need to get you need to get the points off that. Make them so they're not shooting later on. Yeah. Or yeah, at agree. least cross-face them and give them a nosebleed. Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, and that's something that Gary, as a, again, a tall, long-limbed uh, guy who wants to strike, specifically wants to kick, he's going to need to come up with deterrence. Because uh, he's not grown into his full physical strength yet. But he's probably always going to run into guys who are like just physically stronger than him for the for the next foreseeable future. He's lucky that while Song is one of them, Song's a guy that may not try to use it to take him down. <clears throat> but if Song is anything like the fighter he was a couple years ago, I agree with you that this is an appropriate next test. I, I like that Gary having barely just turned 25 years old, isn't being rushed into anything like Jordan Williams, Darian Weeks, Gabe Green, you know, none of them are huge names. None of them are top level. I, I mean, there's a good possibility the year now, none of the three will be in, in the UFC. I, I like how Gary's being brought along here. Song, he's shown flashes of, of quality, but 
he's also just kind of swimming there in the shallow end of the pool, like getting plunked by Max Griffin. I mean, Max Griffin seems to finally be turning a corner, but in two years ago, getting plunked by Max Griffin did not look great. Uh, no, no, but it looks good. It looks good now, though. Yeah, it's it, it, it's aged well as a loss, yeah. uh, but, you know, struggling with Derek Krantz, who was you yeah. know probably That's never a UFC-level guy. Uh, dude, getting flat outstruck by, by Alex Morono, in 2018 and dude alex morono is probably as as good of a friend of as i have in the ufc right now but that's your best that's your closest friend like the yeah i i would say you yeah know. mine's con mine's probably conor mcgregor that's okay yeah you know like mcgregor just yeah you know con- constantly you know blowing up blowing up your phone yeah, it's like, you it's like come on conor con, it's, it's it's like two in the morning i can't yeah, talk right now yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's not even that he's coked out. It's just the time difference. He's like, what? It's like 11 in the morning. You know, I'm just ha- I'm having my tea. <laughs> well, when he's no. stressed out, I'm the guy he calls, you know. Yeah. He's having a hard time. <laughs> I don't think he has anyone to call when he's stressed out. I think he just, like, snorts some coke and does something stupid. <laughs> That's, probably, <laughs> That's probably his problem. But, but you know, like, like losing to, you know, a straight stand-up battle to to Alex Morono was not a you know was not a great look for him. That guy, I, I can't imagine that he's improved markedly in the last two years. He's probably still the same guy he was. He's kind of tailor made for Gary to get some rounds in against. I, I could see Gary putting him away. I could also see him landing a you know a few times solidly on Gary and maybe giving. Ian Gary a chance to learn some of the elements of his game that will and will not work as he continues to move his way up the ranks. But uh, give me Gary in a, in a dominant decision here. The UFC 285 prelims soldier on with a middleweight matchup between Julian Marquez and Marc-Andre Berrio. Marquez, the 32-year-old uh, Kansas City native, is 9-3 and three overall. He is... Three and two since joining the UFC out of the first season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he lost his last time out, uh, appeared at UFC on ESPN, Cater versus Emmett, where he got knocked out by Gregory Rodriguez in the first round. Prior to that, he had won back-to-back fights over Maki Patolo and Sam Alvey, both of those by submission. He'll look to get back on track here against Barrio. The 33-year-old Canadian is 14 and 6 with one no contest overall. He is 3 and 6 with one no contest in the UFC since joining as a former uh, middleweight and light heavyweight champ in Canada's TKO organization. He lost his last time out as well, got put to sleep by Anthony Hernandez with a third round arm triangle choke at UFC Fight Night Sanhagen versus Song in September. Prior to that, he had uh, beaten Jordan Wright back in April by first round uh, submission. So two gentlemen looking to get back in the win column here. Barrio is a slight favorite to do so. He's minus 125. Marquez available at even money or even uh, plus 105 or so on a couple of books. Keith, this is a pretty solidly stacked UFC pay-per-view card. There's no garbage on it. This, This might, I mean... In terms of name value and divisional relevance and future implications, this is probably the worst fight on the card just because it's two guys in their 30s that, I mean, there's no real prospect upside sure. and neither of them is close to the rankings right now, but it should still be a whole hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this no is, each other. like yeah. in, in, in a, on a fight night card or a less 
well put together pay-per-view card this would be a couple of unranked heavyweights just slapping it out and instead we get a couple of aggressive middleweight action fighters that are gonna just come and smash together in in the uh, in the middle of the cage well actually come and smash together in the middle of the cage and then end up at the edge of the cage probably but uh (laughs) it's mark andre barrio but you know if one of the barometers of the health of a card is how bad is the worst fight on it the worst fight on this card ain't that bad. Yeah, this um, is a great card. Yeah, it, it, it's a, a great card, and it's a couple of guys in Marquez and Barrio. In Marquez, I mean, the only real surprise is that he came back at all after that just grotesque, uh, like, bicep tear that took, you know, took surgical reconstruction and was, you know, at least competitive again. With Barrio, it's – he could easily – have been cut by the UFC three years ago. I mean, he came in, lost his first three fights to middling level competition that, well, at the time, middling level competition. Jin Young Park is a lot better than we thought he was. But the UFC <laughs> kept him around. Middle, middle of the card kind of guy, but okay. If you'd asked me in 2019 when he beat Marquez, I would have said, there's no way Jin Young Park is still in the UFC, sure. you know, in 2023, like let alone pretty secure in his job in the UFC. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, you know, since then, Barrios looked pretty good. And it's not just a matter of the UFC matched him down until he found his level. He just seems like a, a better fighter. It it was ironic for a guy whose nickname was Power Bar. Like, he used to just kind of, like, flag late in fights, didn't have another gear, didn't, like, his Power Bar was, was low. And he's turned into a guy who's, you know, fights at a higher pace, his uh, gas tank seems better, and is you know, uh, capable of, uh, he's a, a finisher in a way that honestly, he, he wasn't even really in TKO unless he was really outmatching somebody. Uh, I like Mark Andre Barrio to continue Julian Marquez's slide here. Uh, in broad strokes, they're, they're both guys that want to slug it out on the feet, but have, you know, a surprisingly sturdy clinch game and opportunistic submission game available in their back pocket. They just don't want to use it if they don't absolutely have to. But I think uh, Barrio is bigger, stronger, and if not better, at least as good everywhere. So, you know, give me these two guys to just completely, you know. He might be taller. I don't know if he's bigger. Okay. You know what? They're both kind of like broody kind of guys. They are broody kind of guys. Like, you know, and Marquez is like, he's built like a little tank. Uh, I think, but I think when they get into the case, Barrio is going to look like substantially okay. better because he's, he's roughly as wide. and He's going to be like three inches taller. Uh, I, I think of them at like the Legion of Doom. He's, he's the hawk. And, and, and like Marquez is the animal. Animal. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, those guys were gigantic. Yeah, that's it. Like, we gotta get like, these guys. To, we gotta get these guys to paint their face and wear spikes as they fight each other. Nineteen, <laughs> dude, like the face, dude. Nineteen eighties, like WWE. I'm such a closet <laughs> wrestling. I gotta bring up wrestling. Everything. But but w- both of us just yeah. go straight to the eighties. Like if you start oh, yeah, talking to me about like nineties yeah. or two thousands wrestling, I'm like, uh, I, yeah, don't I peaked know. out about Stone Cold Rock was about when I ended. So yeah, you talked to me about John Cena. Nah, dude, I don't know. But dude, Hawk and an animal, like those guys. All the Ultimate Warrior really did was take that look, tie some ribbons around his upper arms to make his veins pop out and, and ram with it. Like, yeah. Dude, 80s WWF was so roided 
out of its mind. Oh, absolutely. Like, those dudes were all so freaking roided. How are any of them still alive now? And I know a lot of no, them. No, they're are. not. That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> not many of them. That's the problem. Good grief. Anyway, uh, I, I bet we get like a round of the year type contender in the first round as these guys just go completely ham on each other. They'll both get a little tired and it'll turn into more of a grindy clinch thing against the fence. And I think that's yeah. just friendlier territory for Barrio than Marquez. So give me Barrio to win a decision here in a fight that will, it'll probably deserve fight of the night, but it's not going to win it. If no. any of the top, like if if the Jones fight, Neil fight, or Gamrot fight go past the first round, one of them is going to win fight of the night, whether it deserves it or not. But this is yeah, the one that will deserve it. Barrio by decision. Yeah, and the, the battle of the road warriors. Uh, yeah, that's how I was surprised. Like uh, Julian Marcus, yeah, he might be smaller, but he he's a brawler, big, broody, kind of big-chested kind of guy. Uh, he fights. He's, yeah, he's an action guy. He stalks his foe, throwing bombs. Hard, tight hooks. Not much of a defense. Doesn't really avoid strikes. Uh, just eats one, willing to like eat one to throw one back. Uh, he throws some really hard kicks. Uh, and and you mentioned he likes to grind and clinch. So if 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 he's not throwing bombs, he's getting in close, looking at a dirty box, grabbing the back of your head. He'll sneak in a takedown. Uh, and he's he does pretty well just to kind of keep scrambles going. Uh, but I definitely like I'm not categorizing him as a as a wrestler by any means. But if he gets on top. Hard ground and pound. Um, he did get a submission win over Darren Stewart, uh, but because of his style, it's you know he's not throwing a lot of jabs, <laughs> you know, not a lot of, you know. So because of that, uh, he can gas out. And then you also have to worry about his chin because I mean, like his last fight, Gregor Rodriguez knocked him into next week. Uh, so you wonder how that carries over. Uh, Barrio, uh, I, of the two, he's more technical. I'd say he can fight out of both stances, I mean, which got, isn't saying much, but no, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, good volume. He marches down his opponent, uh, throws some really hard shots, especially if he can get to the pocket range, uh, even against a guy like uh, Anthony Hernandez, who I think is a really underrated fighter. When he gets in the pocket, he was willing to exchange some hard bombs. Uh, his straight right is best blow. I'd say he's plus power guy. He, he throws some hard calf kicks, but he wants to be the guy moving forward. He doesn't want to be pressured back, and and that's definitely – like you put him on his on his heels, he's a much different fighter. Jung Young Park did that to him. Anthony Hernandez did that to him. They kind of beat him with their pressure. He has a lot of defense falls when he likes to pillar defense. Uh, he will shoot for a takedown, but he isn't a wrestler. But against uh, Chris Aviaco, he showed some – improved takedown defense, but then he couldn't stop takedowns from Anthony Hernandez. So it's like you, you think Ayako had better wrestle than Anthony Hernandez, but not against Barrio. Uh, again, I think Hernandez is an extremely underrated fighter. Uh, and the biggest concern is he, he couldn't get up from the bottom, uh, but he does have the cardio to go hard 15 minutes. If, if someone gasses, I would expect Marquez to be the one to gas in this fight. I think this is a really hard fight to pick. That's because I'm not high on either. They're both fun. So, like, I agree with you saying, like, this is not going to be a boring fight or anything like that. But I'm not, like, I'm not confident in their skill set. Um, I'm not sure if Barrio hits harder. I, I, I really think that might be pretty even. I, I mean, Marquez, I, Marquez might even hit harder than him. Um, I, I think I'm not really sure. But I definitely am sure that Barrio is the more technically sound striker. I also think he has a deeper gas tank. So I think we can get a slugfest. 
uh, until Marquez's cardio fails him. And I think Barrio gets a late third round stoppage. Uh, give me Barrio by third round TKO. Awesome. I'm just going to point out here that, okay, I, I, I mentioned that up to a point, Barrio's nickname was kind of inappropriate because he named himself the power bar and he didn't have much of one. <laughs> Julian Marquez calling himself the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm just going to point out that I'm sure he just picked it because it sounded cool and he's of Cuban descent, but the Cuban Missile Crisis was a triumph of diplomacy that ended up with no actual <laughs> missiles being launched. Yeah. And that is the exact opposite of, <laughs> like, of Julian yeah. Marquez. I think you're going to say, like, you can't name it after something like that. I'm like, come on, Ben. It's, oh, no, like, 50, it's, like, it's been 50 years, 60 I'm, years. Dude, I'm not interested in political correctness. I'm just interested in actual factual correctness. Yeah, and right. he is the farthest thing from a triumph of diplomacy with, like, no warheads being launched. Yeah. Like, if he, had, if he had been in charge of the U.S. in 1961, like, some missiles would have been launched. Yeah, that's it. That's like, it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Oh, man. Look at the next fight that comes back. Uh, Tatiana, the Bay of Pig Suarez. <laughs> <laughs> the frankly stacked undercard of UFC 285 powers on with a women's flyweight matchup between Viviane Araujo and Amanda Hibas. Araujo, the 36-year-old Brazilian, is 11 and 4 overall. She is 5 and 3 in the UFC. Uh, she's alternated wins and losses over the last couple of years. Uh, Going back about two years, she has a win over Roxanne Mataferi, a loss to Caitlin Chukagian, a win over Andrea Lee, and a loss to Alexa Grasso, who appears further up this card. The most recent of those, the uh, Grasso fight, was a unanimous decision in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 212 back in October. That served as a de facto title eliminator, as Grasso will take on flyweight queen Valentina Shevchenko in Saturday's co-main event. Araujo looks to get back on track and establish that she is still a current and future title contender against Hibas. The 29-year-old Brazilian, 10 and 3 overall. She is 5 and 2 in the UFC, uh, just 0 and 1 at flyweight. She established herself as a strawweight contender, then uh Moved up to 125, where she dropped a split decision to Chukagian at UFC Fight Night, Blahovich versus Rockich last May. She made the decision to continue testing her uh, fortunes at flyweight, and here's her second chance. This fight is a dead pick, and both women available around minus 110, minus 115, depending on the outlet of your choice. Keith, I will say that one of these women we have decided probably runs a sanctuary for adorable uh, lost and orphaned animals out of her home. And the uh, other absolutely does not. The no. other one probably like, like kills and eats them when she finds them in her yard. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, outside the cage savagery, you know, t takes a, a, a backseat to in the cage savagery here. I'm going to ask you a couple questions as you tell me who you think is going to win this one. Do you like, Hebus's decision to stay at 125, and if one of these women fights for a title in the next 18 months, who do you think it is? Ooh, that's both two tough questions. Um, do I like her? I, I, I'm okay with it either way. Uh, I don't, I don't know what her weight cut situation is. Uh, but I always think about what's the easiest path to winning the title. And that would be 115 for her. So I think she'd better well, off at 115. But again, I don't know what I don't know what her weight cut is. Like how much does she cut weight? 
and I'll, I'll just chime in my, my take on this because otherwise I'll forget to when you pass it back to me. But I'll say I, I won't pass it back. Come on. <laughs> I'll like just interrupt you. I'll just keep interrupting you. <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> Generally speaking, unless somebody is like obviously visibly tiny, if they move up to a weight class where they just obviously feel physically more comfortable, I'm always in support of it. Okay. Like just on general principle, it's better for their long-term health. It's often better sure. for their short-term actual competitive prospects. So if Amanda Hibas says, I like how I feel and fight better at 125, then you go, girl. And she took on Caitlin Chikagan, who's one of the biggest fighters, you know, at least long and lengthy for, yeah. for the division. And I thought she won. I thought she should have got the decision. Yeah. And so the, had a robbery or fight like against the longtime number two woman in the division, still top three or four. Yeah, yeah, who's tricky to beat? Who, if you beat her, you're really good. Um, who could I see fighting for the title? That's tough because I think they're both really good. Mm -hmm. And Hebus is more marketable. I mean, if if Disney made a movie where a princess was Brazilian who also fought in the cage, it'd be Amanda Hebus. Like Snow White meets Mulan. It's it's uh it's it's yeah, Amanda yeah. Hibas. Is there a Brazilian one? It's there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, is Mulan Brazilian? I mean, no, no, Mulan. she's Chinese. But I'm just saying, okay, like, okay. like the I, I, yeah. But you know, like that was kind of the first Disney movie where okay, it was a she's princess, like a ninja, but just like right? a fighter. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. She's like yeah. a samurai, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, samurai is Japanese, but yeah, she's someone who like. Oh, you know, I just bad enough my my Washington D.C. story. I need to shut up when it comes to geography and. <laughs> um, that oh, that's man. the support role that I'm here for, sir. There you Geog go. That's like, geography and pronunciation. That's it. Yeah, you're the brains. I'm the looks. All right, let's get to uh, uh, Hebas and Rujo. Uh, I don't know. I, I would say based on the marketability, maybe Hebas, uh, but I, I wouldn't be surprised e either one is fighting for the title eighteen months from now. Like I think they're both really good. Um, I think this on paper, this might be the best fight on the, on the card, based on skills. Uh, divisional relevance, you know, how, how equally matched they are. I've flip-flopped a bunch of times um, on this fight. So uh, Amanda Hibas, she is a athletic fighter. She's elusive. She moves really well, especially at flyweight. Uh, great footwork, very fluid. I like her output. Uh, good at keeping her distance. Uh, with her footwork, quick hands, accurate. She's very good at mixing punches and kicks together in combinations. I, I like her. Uh, well, she likes spinning attacks. You know, I'm. You know, how I feel about spinning attacks. I'm not crazy about it, but she has a judo background. She loves the head and arm throw, which you know I hate. Uh, but she goes for a lot of throws and she gets it a lot. She also um, does have a good body lock takedowns, good top control. She looks to pass on the ground. I, it's it's been a while, but I continue to say this. She outgrappled Mackenzie Turn at at times in their fight, mm -hmm. which is extremely impressive to me. And she has four submission wins. Uh, Adarujao uh, coming off, uh, a, you know, a, I think it was the right decision, but it was a very close fight. Um, but Arujao was very competitive with Alexa Grasso. She's so I think that showed that even though she lost, she's right there in the top of the division, like. You know, couple one or two different combinations goes her way instead of uh, Grasso's way. Maybe she's fighting Valentina Shevchenko on this card. You know, instead of Alexa Grasso, she's also 
elusive. She's also very athletic. She moves and counters really well. Uh, she does well to set up her shots by feinting uh, to get her foes attacks come out and then kind of beating them to the point of attack. She's got quick hands. I like that she rips the body. Some of the best kicks in the division, she targets the calves. Uh, she doesn't check leg kicks. Um, one of her the, one of the losses that doesn't seem right is that she lost to Jessica I, and a big part of that was uh, she refused to check leg kicks. Uh, what, probably probably Jessica I's best performance of her career, and just a really head scratching performance from Adarusha. Uh, but other than that, she looks really good. She will wrestle. She got some fast entries. Uh, though she did struggle to take Alexa Grasso down, but I actually think that might say more about Grasso. Like I think her takedown defense was much better than I than I thought. If she's on top, she's got some strong top game. Shows some really slick grappling and back takes in her fight against Andrew Lee. Like I said, this is a really tough fight. I'm glad that the line is is basically a pick 'em. That's how it should be. Um, I'm on the fence, but I, I, I'm going to go with the power of Disney. I'm going to go, uh, you know, when you believe in magic or something like that, I'm going to go with Hebas. I'm going to say Hebas wins split decision. Uh, this is based simply on maybe I overestimated Rogel's wrestling where I thought it was great and maybe it's it's just above average or in – so maybe we have more of a strike and a fair. And I don't know. I, I might like I might flip 10 times from now until, until the day of the fight because I think they really are evenly matched. Um if Arujo gets takedowns and, and, and dominates Hebas on the ground, won't surprise me. If she lands the harder punches, that won't surprise me. But if Hebas just beats her with volume, Hebas wins and gets some takedowns. <laughs> like I said, I, I'm really on the fence on this one. Uh, give me Hebas by split decision. Yeah, I see that. I, I, I'm glad that the line is a pick as well because this is probably the hardest fight on the card for me to pick. At this point, Araujo being 36 does start to concern me. Uh, that's, a, that's a great point. I didn't even think about that. That's a great point. And it's kind of snuck up she's on getting us. To that, like, she's sorry. She's getting to like, like fairy godmother stage. Sorry. We need to do like a, uh, one of those drinking shows where you got to take a hit every time I interrupt Ben. Don't do that at home, folks. We don't want to be responsible for any deaths. All right, like every uh, every every fifth time you have to every like, fifth time. Just yeah. Poor really small shots. Let's yeah. just put it. Uh but the aging of Araujo has kind of snuck up on us. One, because she's a physical specimen. Like she is by the eyeball test, one of the strongest and most athletic presenting women in that division. And then two, because she's really only kind of turned a corner from being an okay fighter to being a top contender in the last couple of years, like since she was 33 or 34. So she's got to the point where there's a closing window of time where she's clearly, uh, you know, fighting as well as she ever has. And how much can she get done before those physical gifts, like before that top gear slips just a little bit. Um, and honestly, if she wins here and she wins decisively, I could see that playing into the UFC's, uh, you know, thought process going going forward. Like maybe she gets pushed back into the immediate title picture quicker, just because you know she she is thirty six. Uh, the UFC can't afford to slow roll her for like a full year. Uh, 
I already said earlier in this segment, I do like the Amanda Hibas experiments at uh, 125, at least tentatively. She She's not terribly undersized for the division. Like she was a big, powerfully built uh, straw weight. She's not the tallest, but you know she, she has muscle uh, on her frame. She won't be that undersized at 125. I mean, she's smaller than Caitlin Chikagian, but just about everybody is. And that wasn't the reason she lost to Chikagian. It's not like... Chikagian just big sistered her with like a palm in the middle of the forehead for, for uh, three rounds. <clears throat> Hibach's game runs best when her judo is the deciding is cut. It hinge when things hinge on, on her judo, when she's the one who's able to determine whether the fight stays standing or goes to the ground, when she has the option to strike, if she's comfortable or take it to the ground, if she's not, that's when she thrives. That's how she beat uh, Mackenzie Dern. Because she was okay if it went to the ground, but generally speaking, uh, you know, Dern, her problem has always been consistently finding takedowns, and she wasn't able to consistently find takedowns against Hibas, and that's why Hibas beat her. Uh, it's uh, part of why she lost to Marina Rodriguez. Uh, you know, Rodriguez, surprisingly, for someone who presents as, as a pure striker, Hibas wasn't able to just head and arm choker or, you know, uh, inside tripper and, and and fling her around that's going to get tested here against Araujo because Araujo is one of the more physically strong women in the division uh she is very as- athletic I, I i like that you kind of questioned how good Araujo's wrestling is because sometimes she looks like a, a world beater like speaking relative to the merits of the women's flyweight division and other times she looks just average and i think she's one of those fighters where it runs on raw horsepower as much as technique. You know, we and we've talked about wrestlers like that before, whether they're good or bad wrestlers. Like Michael Chandler is a great wrestler, technically, but he also finishes takedowns you shouldn't be able to finish just by uh, hoisting someone who's trying to sprawl and flinging him on their head. Like he, yeah. he's got both things working in his favor. Uh, so I like this fight as a fight. I like it as a kind of a, important pivotal match for the women's flyweight division. And I like it as a referendum on the Amanda Hibas at 125 experiment, because even if Hibas wins, if she just ekes out a narrow split decision and she's not able to get Araujo to the ground, or if Araujo is able to get her down and Hibas has trouble getting back up, even if Hibas wins, then I think I've kind of seen her ceiling at 125 and she's got some decisions to make afterwards. But I'm with you. In the hardest fight on the card for me to pick, I'm going to go with the fighter that was really competitive with a, a very elite fighter in Chikagian and the one who is seven years younger, knowing that, you know, Araujo, if not go off a cliff, is at least going to start slipping, presumably at some time in the foreseeable future here. Uh, just you know, with those unknowns out there, I'm going to lean towards Hebus, but almost no result in this fight would shock me. And I think it's going to be a really fun one. Give me Hebus by decision as well. Second from the top of the UFC 285 prelims is a middleweight matchup between Derek Brunson and Drikas Duplessis. Brunson, the 39-year-old North Carolina native, is 23-8 and eight overall. He is 14-6 and six in the UFC. He lost his last time out. It was a... Second round uh, KO by ground and pound at the hands and elbows of Jared Cannonier last February at UFC 271. 
prior to that, he had been on a five-fight winning streak that brought him all the way to what ended up being that title eliminator against Cannoneer. The wins over that stretch had been Elias Theodoro, Ian Heinish, Edmund Shabazian, Kevin Holland, and Darren Till. Uh, He'll look to get back into the win column, establish himself as still a factor in the title picture against the Red Hot Duplessis. The 29-year-old South African is 18-2 and overall. He is a perfect 4-0 and since joining the UFC out of uh, KSW and Africa's EFC promotion. The wins over his UFC run, uh, Marcus Perez, Trevin Giles, Brad Tavares, and Till. The most recent of those, the Till fight, was a painful-looking face crank submission in the third round at UFC 282 on December 10th. So he's going to look to make it uh, five straight in the octagon, seven straight overall, and mint himself as maybe a sooner rather than later title challenger. And he is comfortably favored to do so. Duplessis minus 240, Brunson plus 200. Keith, Derek Brunson, depending on your definition of gatekeeper, he might be one of the ultimate gatekeepers in UFC history. And there are different gates to keep. Yeah, that's like right. there, there, there are people that keep the gate to the UFC. Like yeah. if you can't beat Parker Porter, you don't belong in the UFC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are people that keep the gate to the top yeah. 10. Like I, I got uh, an 80s reference for you. Hit me. All right. Never ending story. Like give Parker Porter. That's like that. That first like. The, you know what I'm talking about? The two people with shooting the eye. Shooting the, the, the eye. Oh, the two, like, dude, those things terrified me when I was a kid. You, you know, I had kid, nightmares about the, that. The little basket coming out. He made it. He made it. Yeah, I've seen the movie like 9,000 times. Yeah, I've seen that one a million times too. Yeah. And I saw it for the first time when I was like eight or nine years old. And those two things gave me nightmares when their yeah. eyes opened and Atreyu's riding by and he sees the dude <laughs> just all dead and charred on the ground. He's like, run, yeah. Atreyu, run. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, so Derek Brunson's the next one where they start falling apart as he's talking. Yeah. Yeah. Would, what would some of Derek Brunson do? <laughs> Be terrifying, but somehow still falling apart. <laughs> well, here's the, th- the thing. He's the perfect gatekeeper to the top five. He's 14 and six in the UFC. That sounds, oh, that's okay. That's not great. Who's he lost to in the UFC? Yoel Romero, Robert Whitaker, Anderson Silva, uh, Jacare, Israel Adesanya, and Jared Cannonier. Holding aside the fact that he should have beaten Silva, it was a bad decision. Like, you and I do not yeah, throw around the word robbery, robbery yeah, yeah. easily. <laughs> so that was when he lost was one of like my first, one of the first things I did in MMA media. And I was in this panel and it, it was like like 20 different websites making picks on that. And I was the only person to take Dagger Brunson. And I'm like, oh my God. I'm like second guessing this people. It's someone from from ESPN and, and different ones. And I'm like, oh God, like really? I'm the only asshole who, who picked against Anderson Silva. And then I didn't get justified. <laughs> Like, dude, you're justified in my mind because, again, you don't we don't throw around the R word very easily here. But that was a bad decision. And you you toss that one aside again. Everyone he's lost to was a champ or a title challenger or Jacare. And a strike force champ. Yeah. And Jacare was a strike force champ. And it's just I mean, they they fought in strike force, too. And lost it. He lost there as well. But everyone else. He's beaten, and usually in pretty emphatic fashion. Like, if, if you're top 10 but not top 5, Derek Brunson's going to embarrass you. Derek Brunson embarrassed Kevin Holland. Yeah. Like, Derek Brunson crushed Leota Machida 
And yeah. Machida, I mean, that was 2017. Machida still had some competitive juice. He did a lot yeah. after that against decent fighters in the UFC as well as Bellator. Sure. But he, he wasn't top five anymore, and Brunson crushed him. Uh, yeah. Brunson embarrassed Darren Till. Like, for the longest time, you yeah. and I, at least I, and I think you agreed on the Sherdog sure rankings panel, we had Darren Till a little oh, overranked God. at 185. Oh, well, it's because we had him overranked at 170, then he moved up to 185, <laughs> and he just kind of carried that with him. Imagine we went up to 205, like yeah. top five. Yeah. And, but if you, but he wasn't really top five, and Brunson crushed him. Uh, but it, once he runs into the top five guy, he gets crushed. And it doesn't matter if he fights like a dummy, like he did against Whitaker, it gets crushed. If he fought the smart way against Adesanya, like sold out for the takedown as hard as he could, got crushed anyway. Fought the right way against Jared Cannonier, like tried to take him down. Ends up getting knocked out on the ground of all things by 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 Cannoneer. Like, just Derek Brunson, the <laughs> he loses in spectacular fashion. He loses in spectacular fashion. He wins in dominant fashion, and there's just there's just a hard divide there. He doesn't yeah. have any bad losses. He's lost badly, but he has no bad losses. <laughs> That's right. He lo- he's lost badly, but yeah. not bad losses. Yeah. So, this is the perfect test for Drikus Duplessis. Like, we could, we know that Drikus Duplessis is a, is a top ten guy on talent. We don't know if he's top five. We will know, you know, by the end of the night on on Saturday. There's another X factor here. Brunson is 39. Yeah. Just turned 39. Ethnic, ethnic stereotypes aside, you know, the top gear has <laughs> got to slip at some point here. I don't even know what that meant, but okay. We'll just... Black don't crack. Like, you know, oh, okay. like, oh, like, right. like, I think you're like look, covering up some no, like, like, cell or some shit. No, 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 no. Just but like looking at his face, you know, if I didn't know, you told oh, me, yeah, yeah. You told me he was 29. Yeah. You told me he was 46. I'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. it doesn't, it, it doesn't help that he, you know, often bleaches his hair and comes out looking like, you know, demolition man. Yeah. You, you know, looking like you can make uh, like nesting dolls out of him and, Kevin Randleman and Melvin Gillard, you know, like oh, yeah. just like the the oh, yeah. blonde hair black guy. Yeah. Uh but there's no sign of that slippage thus far. I mean, against Cannoneer, he, he didn't lose because he suddenly got no. old or slow or chinny or lost his gas tank. Just Cannoneer shored up his weakness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All yeah, of a sudden Cannoneer had some some wrestling. Yeah. Uh if he is still the same guy, I still got Duplessis in this one. You know, okay. I'm surprised that Duplessis is more than a two to one favorite, uh, yeah, but too. maybe people are seeing the same thing I am. I, I did not believe in Duplessis. I was slow to come around on him. I expected him to beat Marcus Perez because Marcus Perez was not good. But I picked Giles against Duplessis, and I looked real smart for about a round. And then Trevin Giles did the Trevin Giles thing. You know, I've just always said Trevin Giles is like a character in Mike Tyson's punch out where once you, once you know, to wait for the moment, it's like the moment when like King hippo overswings and you see the, the bandaid <laughs> on his belly button and you know, it's we're, time we're, to crush him. We're going a lot of eighties. Yeah. You, uh, <laughs> all our listeners are like 21 years old. Like what the hell are they talking about? Yeah. All of our listeners are like Cameron Simon's age, you know, and they're like, I was born in 2000. What are you guys talking about? Yeah. Uh, I, I've come around to believe in Duplessis because that's what I'm saying. Like I picked Giles to beat him. And even after he knocked out Giles, I wasn't convinced. Cause I was like, well, you know, he took advantage of the Trevin Giles moment. It's going to happen. But 
Brad Tavares is the store brand Derek Brunson. He's the gatekeeper to the top 10. If, if you can beat Brad Tavares solidly, you're a top 10 guy. Uh, Duplessis kind of blown through every obstacle in his path, and he's overcome all of the doubts that, that I have about an undefeated or at least, you know, really gaudy record fighter coming out of like Africa or Asia or Eastern Europe or former Soviet republics. Like, I'm like, let me see him after two cycles through USADA. Let me see if they can wrestle. And he's proven to be more well-rounded than I expected. His power and athleticism have carried over, and he is an improved fighter from the guy he was three years ago. Yeah. Traditionally speaking, it's been easier to take advantage of Derek Brunson on the feet than on the ground. Like the Cannoneer fight was an aberration because of that. Uh, but, you know, Brunson's always been there to get hit by niftier strikers, anyone with decent footwork, anyone with decent head movement. Brunson has, has typically struggled to find them. Give me Duplessis to finish Brunson late in a fight where Brunson gets frustrated looking for the takedowns. Maybe he gets takedowns early. Duplessis survives, gets back to his feet. Brunson gets tired first, uh, and Duplessis starts teeing off on him. Give me uh, Drinkus Duplessis by third round KO. Yeah, this this fight can go anyway. Oh, yeah, it, it, any Derek Brunson fight can go that way. Uh, Derek Brunson, I mean, he's he's a gigantic middleweight. I mean, he's huge. Uh, yeah. he's he's southpaw uh, on the feet. You kind of never know what you get. Sometimes he can be very patient, um, try to really – it almost seems like he's really focused on being technical, and then other times he's just throwing wild haymakers. Who knows what's going to happen? He's always been very unorthodox. Now, he's flat-footed. He drops his hands, but he lands from weird angles because of that. Um, when he gets wild, obviously he can land something big, but he also can get picked apart, especially against like really good strikers. Uh, you're Robert Whitaker. Yeah. <laughs> Israel Adesanya, uh, he can overthrow. Uh, I like that he's he's like the the stereotype of same side attacks. Like he'll throw um, like a, like a teep kick and then followed by a left hand. You know, left teep kick, left hand. Uh, but sometimes I think it's because he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just throwing. Uh, he he likes to lead with a lot of power shots. Like he'll lead with his rear punch. Like he won't throw a jab, but just throw that straight rear punch. Um, he can get in the routine of throwing the same strike over and over again, which is obviously an issue. Uh, he's been hurt God knows how many times. Uh, but he can mix in his wrestling with the striking well. Like He's constantly wants to get the fight to the ground. Um, he's good at when you're opening up your strikes, dropping down the hips, and vice versa. When you expect him to shoot, that's when he's throwing like some, you know, he'll like fake a shot and throw like a, this weird overhand left. Uh, he's very physically strong. If he gets to the clinch, he can battle in there. Uh, it's one of his best positions where I'm using his size. Uh, he can shoot for injuries. Um, I actually like his like more getting inside and like snatch single than you know doing something like that, uh, getting under hook and then dropping down on uh, you know and high crotch or something than than shooting. Uh, if he's on top, strong ground control, good ground and pound. Duplessis. Uh, it's funny because he continues to show improvement and he's slowly growing on me. But he again, I'm I'm with you. Like you're more sold on him than I am. I'm I'm not completely sold on him. Um, if he beats Derek Brunson, you can't I can't deny it anymore. Like like you said, you beat Derek Brunson, you're you're a contender. Um, he's a counter striker that can fight out of both stances. Uh, they've talked about this on the broadcast how deceivingly long his arms are. That when opponents think they're out of range, he's still landing. 
Uh, he's a counter striker with good volume. Uh, he attacks with combinations. He has plus power. You, you mentioned Trevin Giles starts him. He starts Marcus Perez. He hurt uh, Darren Till a lot in their fight. He will throw some spinning attacks out there. He can load up a little bit um, and kind of give out some tells and, and, and show some some when he's going to attack. Uh, he has some defensive holes. He backs straight up. He pillars. Um, uh, he be um, I like he's always constantly on the center line, uh, which is an issue. He's got some good calf kicks. He's not a strong wrestler. Uh, um, he did take down Darren Till, but like my eight year old son might be able to take down Darren Till. Um, he he shows some some mean ground and pound when he's on top. Um, he's got some subs on his record, so I like that. Uh, this is a close fight. Like I, I definitely agree with you when you said Duplessis like more than two to one favorite. Like I'm really surprised by that. That's that's really counting out Derek Brunson. And I'm going the other way. I'm going with Brunson. Uh, I trust his wrestling. I think he's gonna get some takedowns in Duplessis. Uh, I, if Duplessis can show that he can stop a high level wrestler, um, not that I, I don't think Derek Brunson's that high a level, but I mean he he he's, he can wrestle ninety percent of the guys in the division. I see he gets some takedowns. I think he plays a safe. I think we see like a. The Brunson who fought Derek Holland. Uh, I know he did get hurt late, but more wrestle, 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 and and, and right on decision. Uh, give me Brunson by decision. There we go. I believe that is our first dissension on the entire card in the eighth <laughs> fight of the night. So I'm I'm glad we have at least a little intrigue for the folks out there. And of course, it is Keith uh, with the ballsy upset pick. Once yeah, going Derek Brunson. <laughs> The top prelim of UFC 285 is a bantamweight matchup between Cody Garbrandt and Trevin Jones. Garbrandt, the 31-year-old Ohio native, is 12 and 5 overall. He is 7 and 5 in the UFC, uh, 7 and 4 at bantamweight, a run that saw him go all the way to the pinnacle of the uh, division in the UFC and perhaps the entire sport as he won the UFC Bantamweight title in a dominant uh, one-sided uh, decision over Dominic Cruz a little over seven years ago, or sorry, a little over six years ago, the New Year's Eve uh, 2016 card, the uh, UFC 207. Wow. Nunes versus Rousey. You know, that was Rousey's last fight. So if you managed to finagle that invitation to the Brown Rousey Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we were talking about that on, on the air. Well, then, you know what? Uh, the people have to demand it in the comment section, and we can right. bring it up next week. Uh, <clears throat> since then, however, uh, since December 30th, 2016, it's been a rough run for the man they call No Love, who is, eh, I mean, definitely gotten that. Losses to TJ Dillashaw, lost to Dillashaw in their rematch, a knockout loss to Pedro Munoz, a win over Rafael Asuncao, and then losses to Rob Font, and most recently, uh, to Kai Car France, just a little over a year ago, he tried dropping to flyweight, took on uh, Kai Car France at UFC 269, and uh, got knocked out in the first round once again. So has decided that his best fortunes, his best future, whatever those may be, lie in the division where he made his bones, comes back at 135, faces Jones, a man with a bit to prove himself. The 32-year-old Guamanian, is 13 and nine with one no contest overall. He is just one and three with one no contest since joining the UFC uh, in August of 2020. Worth noting that that no contest is him 
plunking Timur Valiev in his short notice UFC debut, then having it overturned later uh, because he tested positive for cannabis. We say this every time. I, I think it's pretty uncontroversial, but I don't think cannabis is a performance enhancing drug. And in either case, if you're debuting on short notice and you're testing for something that sticks in your system for over a month, that seems like kind of an unfair standard. And hell, if you're some dude fighting in a regional promotion and they say, hey, do you want to come play, fight in the UFC on 10 days notice? Are you going to tell them, hey, I smoked weed three weeks ago? <laughs> Hell no, you're not. Yeah. You're going to get in the UFC, get your foot in the door, even if you know, you know you're going to get uh, popped afterwards. At any rate, the the breakout win over Valiev uh, reversed. He won his second UFC fight over Mario Bautista, knocked him out in the second round as well. Since then, there's been no joy uh, for uh, for Jones as he has lost consecutive fights to Saeed Yokub, Kakramanov, Javid Basharat, and Hani Barcelos. So he's looking for it not to be four in a row. Uh, he is not favored to do so, despite everything. Uh, Garbrandt comes in as a minus 175 favorite. Jones out there around plus 140 on the comeback. Keith, I'm, I'm going to throw this question out just so you remember to answer, but I'll, I'll talk about the, the fight first. In the history of the UFC, is there a fighter that had a faster and harder fall from grace from their best career moment and best achievement than Cody Garbrandt? Because Garbrandt won the title in a one of those fights that it was a shocking upset. Yeah, like not many people mm -hmm. expect him to beat Cruz, but it didn't look like an upset in the cage. It looked like, yeah, oh, yeah. man. No, he looked amazing. It, like, was, it was one of those like, holy shit moments. Yeah, it was, it was a home versus Rousey upset where it's like, yeah, it was an upset on the odds, but it didn't look like an upset. It looked like we just found out yeah. and were surprised by who was the superior fighter. It, it, seeing what he did that night, you would think that we're, we'd be talking about Cody Garbrandt defending his title tonight. Like he's going right. to go on one of these all-time runs. I mean, when he was uh, matched against Tita Dillashaw and, and the ultimate fighter and everything, it was like, Everybody was like, oh, my God, TJ Dillashaw is going to get wrecked. Like, what's what's going to happen? We've seen him have, you know, lose to Cruz. Look what Garbrandt did. Uh, to answer your question, who has fallen from grace that quick, you know, or falling, I shouldn't say grace, but, um, you know, just their careers has yeah. crashed. Um, Hennon Burrell comes comes to mind. Uh, and Rico Rodriguez, maybe. Like, he won yeah. the UFC title and then just – you know, he's yeah. he's literally a 500 fighter since then fighting yeah. on like porn sites but yeah and he was doing cocaine and he was on like yeah. rehab shows and um i'm sure there's one or two other guys i'm not yeah. thinking of but, but, but you know, the point it, is it, it was doesn't get much worse peak peak yeah um yeah it, I, I know you want to break down the fight but one thing i'll say this like cody garbrandt does not deserve at this point to be this high up the card like it, it should not be above Brunson and no. and uh Duplessis who you know that that winner that fight especially if it's Duplessis like Duplessis might be fighting a, a main event in his next fight like yeah. a fight night main event dude the uh, winner of Araujo versus Hebus might be fighting for a title next yeah so yeah yeah they, no, I, they, they should not be above and there's a couple other fights down there. there's prospects that like you can make an argument that this should be the f opener of the card but they're never going to do that to a former champ. No. Yeah, that's 
no, I like Garbrandt since that win. He is one in five. All five losses have been stoppages, and a couple of them he has been knocked out cold. It's <clears throat> it's it's like you condensed, you know, a couple of years of Chuck Liddell's like late career. Yeah, and he went from like champion Chuck Liddell to last five fights Chuck Liddell like overnight. Um, and yeah. nothing, nothing's fixed it. Like they had him fight, you know, he's fought at flyweight. It didn't help. He fought a guy in Rob Font that's you know a very very good striker, but not a one shot like kill shot artist. And that's the only time that Garbrandt like even made it to the to the final uh, horn, and it wasn't like yeah. that competitive no uh it's 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 rough and the thing is i i hate to be like a revisionist history type guy but like looking back it's it, it's almost like okay you know he beat dominant cruz he solved the unsolvable puzzle you know of dominant cruz because he, I mean, he did it with uh, speed. Just Cruz had, even even though Cruz had beaten Dillashaw, he had not fought somebody with the quite that combination of hand speed and power. Just his Garbrandt kept catching Cruz where nobody real, else really had, and when he caught him, it hurt Cruz and just took him out of his game. Got Cruz, one of the smartest fighters in the history of the sport, into his own head. But since then. Garbrandt mostly has been in firefights that his chin cannot sustain. That's been, that to me has been the the common thread throughout this run of like six years of, of futility. Uh, in both Dillashaw fights, he had his moments and then got just got iced when uh, Dillashaw found his chin. It happened uh, in the Pedro Munoz fight, and I, I do I think he was favored against Munoz like pretty heavily, even coming off the two losses to Dillashaw. Sure. But but the Munoz fight looked exactly like the Dillashaw fights. He got into a wild swinging contest in a phone booth. He hit Munoz several times. He hurt him. But when Munoz like finally landed cleanly, he dropped like a marionette whose strings had been cut. Trevin Jones is a marginal UFC talent. Yeah. But he has good hand speed and he hits really hard. He hits hard, yeah. Garbrandt is a is a favorite here, but I'm leaning Jones. I, really, I am. Wow. It, Jones is this would be his worst loss. It, it, well, it'd be easily even it, going it, down to play. It was it was Kai Car France like a stud. Yeah, yeah, Kai Car France, a you know title contender at, at 125 yeah. and a big 125er. I mean, yeah. Gar, Garbrandt and Kai Car France were the same size, basically. Um. Jones is on a three-fight losing streak, but you know what? He was beating Saeed Yakub Kakramanov and then got you know caught in the submission late. Otherwise, he was he was on his way to beating the guy. It was four minutes plus into round three. He'd probably won the first two rounds, and Kakramanov caught him, choked him out, and that loss is aged well. Kakramanov, it you know, is a stud. He's good. He lost to Javid. Okay. Against Basharat but, and Barcelos. Both those guys are very good. I mean, Barcelos, we could go right now. We'd take the Benweight top 15. And just, anyway, <laughs> Basharat and Barcelos are both really good fighters. Jones has not been was not competitive with either of them. You know, like, I don't think he won a round in between those two fights. And Barcelos probably put one 10-8 round on him. 
but they also did things to him that Garbrandt's not going to. Unless Garbrandt has changed the fighter that he is, that I can't imagine him doing, uh, you know, at, at this stage in his career, Garbrandt's going to come out. He's going to look to box. You know, he, he's at his best. He's one of the best technical boxers the that division has ever seen. But the minute someone tags him, you know, with anything, that all just seems to go out the window and he wants to go toe-to-toe and stand in the phone booth and swing wildly with somebody. And I have no faith in his ability to survive that, even against Trevin Jones. Like, that's Trevin Jones' best route to victory, and I believe Garbrandt's going to give it to him first chance he gets. Uh, it's funny. I was about to say I can't imagine Garbrandt changing that at his age, but Garbrandt's only 31 years old. <laughs> that's crazy. It is crazy. Like, he's younger than Jones. Like, he has, he is one of the youngest shot fighters I can remember. Yeah. Uh Honestly, it's kind of like That's another reason why we thought he'd have this run that he had. Yeah, yeah, because when he beat uh, when he beat Cruz, he was only like twenty five years old. I know. In fact, he had the record for the longest time. He won a UFC title in his tenth professional fight. <laughs> you know, he, he was like behind like Brock Lesnar, who doesn't count. It, it felt when he won that fight, it was like an Anderson Silva, like when he ran through Rich Franklin it, moment. Like it yeah. seemed like oh, it's the beginning of an era. And the difference so was yes, Silva was, right. was already like 33 or something when he beat Franklin. Mm-hmm. Like he was older than Franklin. Uh, or they were about the same age. Yeah. <laughs> it was the beginning of an era, E R R O R era. Yeah. Because uh, that, that only rhymes if you're from Boston, dude. Like, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> uh, anyway, a uh, long way around for me, for me to say that I think our brand's getting knocked out in the first round again. Uh, I think our brand's going to come out, try to be measured. He knows that he's fighting for any remaining shine here. He knows that if he loses, if this isn't his last fight in the UFC, it's at least his last time fighting this far up a card. He's fighting a guy that's probably going to get cut if he loses. Like, this is Garbrandt's last chance to pick up a win. He's going to come out and fight like that. And then, magically, two minutes into this thing, Jones is going to clip him with something. Garbrandt's going to bite down on the mouth guard, start swinging, and he might catch Jones. But if he catches Jones, I think Jones survives it. When Jones hits Garbrandt cleanly, it, it, he's not going to. Give me Trevin Jones by a knockout late in the first round. Yeah, and if, if Garbrandt loses, uh, his next fight will be like uh, the winner of uh, Raytheon Stotts and Petchy Mix. <laughs> like, that's, that's, it's entirely – Yeah, I know. It, It'll be something to talk about on, on the, the recap. I mean, the UFC yeah. is – the UFC right. is quick to let former contenders go if they don't have a path back to the title. I mean, look at Corey Anderson, look at Ryan Bader, mm. but they are not quick to let former champs go because the last thing they want is some washed up former champ getting announced as a former UFC champ and getting lamped by Apache Mix or Ralphion Stotts. Yeah, or be a former UFC champion and, and fighting for the Belfort Tour championship in the lightweight Grand Prix. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cody Garman joins PFL at like 145. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that, that's that, probably possible. Like they're secretly trading him for Loic Rajabov. Oh, like, that's, that's already happened. Like, <laughs> like he, he's the player to be named later. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> PFL Tajikistan. Like he makes his, he made Cody Garbrandt makes his debut. Yeah, you know, in, in, in in that arena with five people in it. Yeah. It all, but it all gets canceled because he can't, he can't pass the physical. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, Garbrandt, it, it's it's a good possibility that he's completely washed. Um, 
injuries have taken a big toll on him too. Like that's one thing we haven't talked about. I mean, he's had like neck surgeries, neck, back yeah. surgeries. Um, he looked even worse at one twenty five than he did at one thirty five. What what he still does well is he's still athletic. He can still move well. He's got a sharp jab, good feints, tight inside boxing. Uh, he can still crack. I mean, Rafael Sunstone knows about that. Hard leg kicks. But you mentioned his chin is shot. And it's worse when he doesn't control himself, when he opens up, um, just swings wildly, uh, really, really loads up on his shots, telegraphs. Uh, trying to finish the fight with one huge blow, like knocking out Rafael Sanzo might be one of the worst things that happened to him because he, now he's you know trying to get that moment. Because I don't know if you remember, not only did they knock him out, but it was one of those one of those like holy shit knockouts. It, it like, was it was on the knockout of the year list. I don't remember whether he won it, but yeah. yeah. So his chin shot. He's also lost some head movement. He can't avoid like that left the next, hook. The next surgery will do that to you. Yeah, yeah. do that. Yeah, he can't avoid a left hook to save his life. Like, he just keeps getting blasted with it. Uh, everyone's knocking him out with that. Uh, he makes a mistake of brawling when he's hurt instead of trying to recover, instead of rustling. Um, he tries to even the score with shots. Uh, he's a good wrestler. You know, they're very good reactionary double. Uh, we saw him really like, reshoot on Dominic Cruz, which was like so amazing. Um, has some strong takedown defense. Great at scrambling back to his feet. He has the experience of going going deep into fights. Um, you know, you mentioned Rob Font going, even though he got beat up in that fight, he wanted you know, decision to main event. But a lot of the stuff that I'm still getting credit for, I haven't seen that it's gone, but it was like forever ago. So I, I don't even know if I should even count some of these things. Now, Trevin Jones, on the other hand, he's a southpaw. He's a counter striker. Uh, he's a pretty sharp striker. Uh, he can be a little gun shy, a little too patient. Um, but when he lets his hands go, he's got good hand speed. He's got a crisp jab, nice right. Uh, check hook, nice straight left. Uh, he does drop his hands, um, and that and that's because he kind of throws from weirder angles. Um, his counter right is what put Timur Valiev out. Um, he showed that the the power punch punching wasn't a fluke because he knocked out Mario Batista too, and that's that is a win that is aged really well. Uh, he has been hurt in the past. Uh, he doesn't have much of a kicking game, which I don't like. He doesn't check leg kicks. Uh, he will wrestle a little bit. He'll sneak a takedown in. Good, good reactionary double. He's got four sub wins, though. I'd say his takedown defense is pretty poor. I mean, we saw that against Ronnie Basolos. Basolos had such success wrestling him. Uh, he really struggled to get back to his feet. Uh, but to his credit, he really showed some incredible heart in that Valley fight. Like he was a camp from behind victory. Um, Garbers won one fight in, in six years. In fairness, his losses are to studs. Like, you know, um, you mentioned what uh, Pedro Munoz, TJ Dillashaw twice, Rob Font, Rob Font and Kai Car friends. That everybody? Yep, yep, that's everybody. Yeah, I mean, those are studs. Uh, I all, mean, the worst, all top, all top five fighters at least. Yeah, yeah. Who, who's the worst guy in that group? Like Rob, Rob Font. Pedro Font. Font's the only Rob. like Font. It panned out to be more of like a top 10 guy than the top five. But at the time, Font yeah. was as hot as they got. Yeah. So like even now, a top 10, top 15 guy, like that's, yeah. that's the worst guy he's lost to. So this is a big step down in competition for Garbrandt. Yep. Um, I will say this. He was originally supposed to face Julio Arce. Um, good for Cody Garbrandt. That he's not facing Julio Arce because Arce was going to starch him. Um, Jones is by far the lowest guy he's faced in an extremely long time. 
Jones is also taking the fight on shorter, not not extremely short notice, but shorter notice. I think he had a couple weeks. We've seen like athletes, like fallen athletes, just suck overnight. Um, I shouldn't say suck. I hate saying that, but um, just. It, and I'm not but, just talking. I, I if, you did, if you didn't know who Garbrandt used to be, and all you had to go on was what he's done over the last five years, yeah, no, I know. Yeah, if you, yeah, if, yeah you'd see, you wouldn't say he was. Um, if you know, we've seen it in so many sports where a guys like su- superstar, and like the next season is like, what the hell happened to this guy? You know, um, if I'm coaching Cody Garbrandt, like every single day he showed up in practice, I'm like, put on the wrestling shoes. Like put on the wrestling shoes. We're wrestling. I would turn Cody Garbrandt into Ben Askren. Like we're turning this entire match into a wrestling match. Uh, that's the clear victory to him. I just <laughs> let me tell you a story. <laughs> this, all right, I'll give you a quick story time. Uh, I remember. I don't know where this is coming from, but I remember when I was in elementary school. There was this kid. I don't want to say his name, but there was this kid. He was like bigger than everybody. So kind of like me and my friends were like, I don't know if we were scared. Yeah, I said we were probably kind of scared of him. And there was this one kid who like one day stood up to the bully. It's like you see in a movie. This guy, this guy Danny, stood up to him. And Danny was tough, but he wasn't like the toughest kid. And then they fought each other, and Danny like beat his ass. And we were like, whoa, like the kid's not that good. And like the very next day, my friend Walter, who wasn't a good fighter at all, fought the kid. And like Walter beat him. Then like the third day, I'm like, dude, I can I can beat up Walter. I'm getting in on this. <laughs> so like I beat him up. And, and like that's how I feel like Cody Garbrandt. It's just everybody's piling on now. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's 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 Trevin Jones turn. I think Jones starches him too. I say Jones knocks him out. You went first round, I'll go second round. Dude, to make it to the second round would be a moral victory for Garbrandt. Yeah, maybe. Like You're if right. this turns into a wild <laughs> swinging match in the first round and and Garbrandt yeah. even survives it, all right. You know what? Like, can I let, let me change it to the second half of the first round? How about that? <laughs> <laughs> I'll put that in the little scrolling thing that goes up at the end of the show. <laughs> oh my goodness! <clears throat> all right, give me just a second here. That was an unplanned story time. I don't know where that one came from. That was that was. That was great. Dude, like, time. No, you bullied that. No, he was bullying us. And then we all stood up to the kid. He was big. He was like, he was, I should have said he was a fat kid in like the, the big fat dude, kid in elementary school. Dude, not, I mean, elementary school and junior high, like up through about, you know, ninth or 10th grade when people actually start doing sports on a serious level, there's always that phenomenon of like the fat kid that like thinks he's strong just because he's fat. Don't make me get up, man. It's like, yeah. As the UFC 285 main card kicks off, you may notice that I have a guitar in my hands. That is because we're about to talk about Bo Nickel, so I know that I'm going to need something to do with my hands for about 15 minutes, so I figure I can just mute my mic, get in some reps while Keith talks to us. Uh, The main card, of course, opens up with a middleweight matchup between the debuting Nickel and Jamie Pickett. Nickel, the 27-year-old Texan by way of State College, Pennsylvania, is 3-0 as a professional mixed martial artist. He is making his UFC debut after two appearances on the 2022 edition of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, He choked out Zach Borrego in about a minute 
in August, came back seven weeks later and choked out Donovan Beard in less than a minute. That apparently was enough uh, to, to get him into the UFC. So uh, we've been waiting for that ever since. Nickel, of course, is debuting in the UFC in his fourth professional fight because of his amateur background. Uh, he is a three-time NCAA champ at Penn State University. He was a U23 world champ. For those who don't know, that just means he was uh, the world champ in the under 23 years of age championships. In freestyle in particular, uh, that is a pretty good indicator of future Olympic success if uh, wrestlers choose to go that way. He appeared in the Olympic trials for the 2020 Olympics, uh, lost to David Taylor in the last match. David Taylor ended up winning the gold medal that year, so you can make a plausible argument that Bo Nickel may have been the second best wrestler in the world. Uh, uh, that silver medals was pretty good, though. I, no, I'm, I'm just saying, yeah, like, no, I'm yeah. not saying he would have won the silver medal if, like, sure, Taylor had sure. gotten injured and I Nickel can't think had of the guy's name, but him and Taylor yeah. had. But it's not like he got skunked by a guy who lost in the first round at the Olympics. He lost to David Taylor. Uh, At any rate, the magic man. Yeah, yeah, that finally decided Nickel, basically, uh, not to put off a mixed martial arts career any further. He uh, turned to mixed martial arts in 2021 after having trained for a couple of years, made his pro debut in 2022. And uh, less than a year after his pro debut, he is in the UFC. Uh, Waiting to receive him is Pickett. The 34-year-old North Carolina native is 13 and 8 overall. He is 2 and 4. And I assume that he is the one to greet Nickel because he is one of only two or three people that can claim to have been on the Contender Series more times. Uh, He appeared on the first season of the Contender Series where he lost to Charles Bird. Uh, appeared again on season three, where he lost to Puna Soriano. Uh, appeared on the fourth season in 2020, where he finally got his win, uh, beating Jonovan Potty by second round TKO. That was good enough to get him to the UFC, where he has had mixed results. Uh, and even that is putting it somewhat kindly, as uh, it's not a mix so much as uh, has mostly lost. Uh, he dropped his first two UFC uh, bouts. Came back with back-to-back wins over Loriano Steropoli and Joseph Holmes. And since then, uh, has dropped back-to-back fights once again. Uh, though, you know, Kyle Dawkins is a solid uh, middleweight. And Dennis Tuliulin, the jury is still out on him. Pickett, looking to make it not three in a row, has a tough draw here. Uh, Nickel, one of the biggest betting favorites in UFC history. Uh Minus 1,500 is the best line I can find on him right now. The best line I can find on Nickel is minus 1,500, pick it plus 900 at a reputable site for North American betters. Most of them are out there, Nickel around minus 1,800. And we're talking about places like, you know, uh, BetUS, like reputable betting houses uh, have them close to minus 2,000 favorite. So... We got some Kayla Harrison-esque odds out there. Only time will tell whether Nickel delivers a Kayla Harrison-esque performance. Keith, much as I want to, and much as I can tell you want to, let's, let's shelve the talk of Nickel's potential future title challenger or champ yeah, upside. And let's talk first. His, his UFC about, debut. 
let's just yeah. talk first about his UFC debut because if Pickett goes out there and does a Masvidal versus Askren just ices him with an intercepting knee in five seconds. <laughs> not a bad strategy. Not yeah. a bad strategy. And if that happens, everything we say on this preview is going to be sound bites. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, we're going to get one of those periodic emails that we get from that Sherdog gets from the UFC saying, Hey, can we use a bit of one of your preview or recap shows for one of our hype reels? You know, like they, they did that once. Um, yeah, yeah. In the last couple of years. So, I'm going to speak as guardedly as I can, but I'm absolutely absolutely going to flip this one to you first because okay. your interest in Nickel as a MMA prospect is such a thing that it's become a meme for our listeners yeah. where we have to get in at least <laughs> one mention of him on any card. Like, dude, we could be previewing an Invicta card and That's it. it's like we'd work in some discussion <laughs> of like how Bo Nickel would, you know, would do. <laughs> um. All right, so let's be serious for a second. Okay. All right, negative fifteen hundred for a guy who's making his UFC debut with three professional fights in about I don't know a less than half around less than a half around of total work. Yeah. So like two and a half minutes of work going as a guy who's had I don't know five five fights in the UFC something like that. He's had six fights in the UFC. And several of them have gone the distance. Had some contender series fights, been, been around for a long time. Like, yeah. it, well, dude, he fought Dennis Tuliulin for nine and a half minutes there you go. back in September. And that is more than Bo Nichols' entire pro and amateur careers. There you go. Um, yeah, he didn't have like one of these 20 fight amateur careers either. He had two. Yep. Um, if I was setting the line, I was trying to be serious, like negative 300. For for Bo, which is still very disrespectful to his opponent for being that he has way more experience. Um, but for a second, I mean, he's he's a long and lengthy fighter. He's a southpaw. What really stands out to me so far, which is a little dangerous in his UFC debut, but despite being extremely unexperienced MMA fighter for this level and having a massive wrestling background, he is not scared to strike. Uh, he's very loose, very relaxed while the fight's standing, uh, he, which is a good sign. He obviously is a great athlete. And because of the threat of the takedowns, um, it opens up his striking opportunities, and he has natural power. Uh, when we talk about his wrestling, you gave his accolades. I mean, I'm going to say him again anyways. I mean, the guy, I really want to stress this. He's elite of the elite when it comes to wrestling. I, how will that translate to MMA wrestling? I understand MMA wrestling is different. There's no, there's really no like, there's no referee's position. There's tilts don't matter. And he, Bo Nichols, a big cradle guy, like that doesn't matter. But just straight credentials. He's a four time NCAA All American, he's a four time NCAA finalist, he's a three time NCAA champion, he's a Hodge Trophy winner. You mentioned you explained what a U23 World Championship is. You face, you mentioned that if David Taylor wasn't born, if David Taylor's mom didn't meet his dad, Bo Nickel would have been in the Olympics and he probably would have medaled. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, the I can't, I don't I don't remember the guy, the guy from, I think he's from Iran that David Taylor had the incredible match with. They've, they've had a bunch of good matches. They've kind of been back and forth in World Championships. I don't know if Bo would have beat that guy. But he may have. Like he, we might be talking about Olympic gold medalists. 
And Bo would have a good shot at making the next Olympics and not only just making the Olympics, winning in the Olympics. Like he's that good. I mean, he's got, obviously he's got elite entries, elite throws, unbelievable hip control, great at winning scrambles, almost impossible to take down and definitely to control. He's got the, the perfect front headlock game. If you shoot on him, uh, as I mentioned, it doesn't matter in MMA, but he, like his cradle series is as good as anybody who's ever wrestled ever. Like his, he's got the best cradles or, or you know, he's in the conversation. Uh, he has two submission subs already in his career. He's got one as an amateur. He's been competing in grappling competition. Now, you know, people mentioned he won against Gordon Ryan. They had like a 15-minute match, and it was like 13 minutes before Gordon Ryan submitted him, which is incredible. But in fantasy, he didn't, like did not go to the ground with Gordon Ryan at all. He was just he was just stuffing takedowns and he was going to shoot on him at the end and try to win. But um, there's guys that are, um, you know, you talk about credentials in MMA, that's, there's guys who have, you know, you could say, oh, Henry Sudo won Olympic gold medals or, or this or that. Bo Nickel is as good as anybody who's ever wrestled, you know, with a wrestler who's ever come to MMA. Now, don't at me with Rulon, um, with uh, Alexander Karelin in his one match, but I'm saying, like, guys who really committed to becoming an MMA fighter, I'm not saying he's better than this guy. He's better than that. I'm like, he's in that conversation. He's right. th- like, I want to like when people like ask me like who would win between him and Shamayev in a wrestling match. Nickel Bo Nickel would him. pin Shamayev in like 20 seconds. Yep. Like Bo Nickel is incredible wrestler. Now, will that translate translate to MMA? We don't know. I think it's going to, but we don't know. He, he is getting rushed. Um, but but based on that wrestling credentials, he's older than he's like he's like twenty seven. So I yep. mean, like it's not old for USA debut, but it's older for only having three fights. Uh, move on with Pickett. He's a minus athlete. Um, he does fight at both stances. He's he's a bit of an outfighter. He wants to work from the outside. He does have some pretty quick hands. Um, he wants to be the one pressing the action, and he hated all the pressure that Tulian was giving him. Uh, Tulian hurt him to the body. Uh, I'd say Pickett has some some pop in his, in his strikes. Uh, he likes to throw a flying knee, as you mentioned, so that might be his best avenue to catch nickel with something. Uh, he can wrestle. He train wrestles well. He's got some good ground and pound. Uh, he's not much of a submission threat. He's got a weaker takedown defense, though it doesn't matter against Bo Nickel if he had the best takedown defense. Um, and he struggles to get back to his feet. One thing I hate, which is so insulting, is when someone spends like eight weeks with a high level wrestler and instantly they think that's like somehow going to make up, like oh I, I saw some I saw someone say Pickett was training with Chris Weidman like okay that's great like and, when, when Bo Nickel went against like like world champions they're not wrestling with quality wrestlers <laughs> you know like when he when he's when he when he beat Miles Martin Miles Martin's main training partner was Olympic gold medalist Kyle Snyder. Like, it's just that's just stupid. Anyways, not not to right, mention that Chris Weidman, you could put his picture right alongside Cody Garbrandt with guys who never wrestled again after neck surgery. Yeah, that's but. true. That's a good point. That's a good point. Um, Pickett is way more experienced than Bo Nickel. I think Bo Nickel mauls him. I think Bo Nickel takes him down in seconds. I think he beats him up. I think he locks in a submission. I think I, we go, holy crap! How is this guy 
three fights into the UFC beating guys this quick. I think he jumps out of the cage. I think he runs into the crowd. I think he like heals a blind man uh, and he restores his sight. And then he like flies off into to heaven and to not return for three months. And then he comes back and does it again. Bo nickel by first round submission. Yeah. So my main takeaway from this is that I took off my guitar too soon. Um, <laughs> uh, Obviously, I know well, and you know better than I do, what a different level Nickel is at, even against the other, you know, top level wrestlers who've crossed over to, to MMA. And in order to kind of exclude the weird, like, people who want to be pedantic about things, something that I, I've said about uh, some jujitsu crossovers, you know, I, I think I said that Rodolfo Vieira is the best Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner to cross over to MMA seriously near his physical prime since like Jacare, you know, like, like th that's a better way to put it. Cause then that eliminates all the people that, you know, did a one-off fight and then went back to doing clinics in whatever, or people that crossed over when they were like 37 years old, you know, and had nothing left in the tank. Yeah, and that's what we get a lot. We'll get, oh, what about what about this guy? What about, yeah, yeah, well, this guy also came over. It's like, Bo Nickel's coming in his like, yeah. prime no. wrestling years. Bo Nickel is the greatest amateur wrestler to cross over to MMA seriously in or near his physical prime that we've ever seen. He's he's the – take out the international scene, going – like, and you pretty much just said this, going strictly from NCAA credentials. No one has a better NCAA credentials who's ever wrestled. Right. And ironically, credentials. ironically, you know, one of the ones who would be closest would be his predecessor at Penn State, Ed Ruth, who turned out to be yeah. a little bit of a bust as an MMA fighter. Yeah. yeah. But rushed, rushed and never picked up some of the, you know, just like didn't didn't develop the way he might have. We don't know how, how Nickel will develop. We don't know what it will look like when he faces an actual elite striker in MMA. We don't know what it will look like when he faces an elite MMA wrestler, regardless of their comparative uh, amateur credentials. I mean, again, keep in mind that, you know, the one of the greatest MMA wrestlers in history is George St. Pierre, who literally never wrestled competitively never wrestled, yeah. and beat multiple former NCAA champs with wrestling. Yeah, so we don't know. We don't yeah. know. But what we can look at is, like there are certain boxes we can check off. Like what type of wrestler was he, you know, as an amateur, he, you know, we have people that cross over that are funk style wrestlers that their success in, on the amateur level never depended on a blazing fast first step or enormous power. It, you know, it, they needed flexibility and coordination and just that incredible innate sense of balance and shifting weight that some people just have and then hone through thousands of hours of doing this and is is almost unteachable uh that's not nickel nickel has an explosive first step he is a great athlete and you know just has the coordination super explosion. creative super yeah. creative he's very creative uh Obviously, physically strong as an ox, like nobody, nobody wins NCAA titles, let alone world titles without being physically strong. But Nickel is is going to have a physical strength advantage over basically everybody he fights forever. 
And he's uh, he's Billy like John Jones. He's this long, lengthy yeah. guy. Yeah. Yeah. And and similarly, like John Jones didn't look like he should be as strong as he was, but then all of a sudden he's just hoisting and slamming like Andre Guzmao and Stefan Bonner in his first couple of UFC fights. You know, like you you remember when he just basically like gut wrenched Bonner and like <laughs> you know threw him mm. like they suplexed him. Yeah, it just Nickel is, is similar. Like he's he's not one of those short tank like he, he suplexed Gordon Ryan in a judicial match. Ryan, yeah, like Ryan, who is obviously untouchable, like like probably the the greatest heavyweight grappler of all time at this point. Like, and not to get too far into a side conversation, but jujitsu can at the top levels can be a little like catty and unpleasant at times. But you know that Ryan is the greatest heavyweight grappler of all time because the other people who are in the conversation are saying it. You know, you've got like people like Verdum and Pedapano and like being like, no, dude, this dude's doing stuff that we've never seen before. Like Brazilians that don't like to admit that anyone's better at BJJ than Brazilians are like, no, this dude's doing stuff we've never seen. Uh, and he probably outweighed Nickel by 30 pounds and Nickel tossed him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Gordon Ryan's like 230 pounds of like, oh, yeah, gorilla muscles and, and like horse meat. Uh, anyway. So all the boxes that you can check three fights into your career, he does. And I, I like that you pointed out the body type because it's not a guarantee that he will like develop into a better striker, but he's better equipped for it than somebody that's just built like a fire hydrant and is going to give up reach to everybody. Cause Nichols got a pretty good size frame for, for 185. He's not Duran win, you know, he's, He's not, I mean, he's not even Phil Hawes. Like, he's more like a John Jones build, like long arms, long legs, uh, and yet still has just that unbelievable core strength of, of the veteran wrestler. Uh, Can I say this real quick? Of course. We're about wrestling. Bo Dick was better than Daniel Cormier ever was. Yeah. And Daniel yes. Cormier obviously might be the greatest, mm-hmm. might be the greatest MMA wrestler ever. And Bo Nickel was a better wrestler than Daniel Cormier was. Yeah. Uh, agreed. It'll it'll it will remain to be seen whether that continues to be the case against uh, elite mixed martial artists. I mean, thus far, Pickett is going to be the first guy he fights that's even arguably UFC level, and he is a bottom of the barrel like middleweight. But yeah. hey, at, at least he's a you know good sized hundred and eighty five pound guy. That can I, can I say something crazy? Yeah. I think I think all right. This is gonna give me some hate. This is gonna give me hate. I don't care. I think Bo Nickel beats Alex Pereira right now. Now listen, listen to what I'm saying. I am not saying Bo Nickel is the best middleweight in the world right now. No, I'm saying if those two guys fought, I think I'm taking Bo Nickel. I'm with you. So if there's any hate, bring it on both of us because you know what. Pereira would have about 30 seconds to starch nickel with one shot. He, like in, in the first yeah. round. And if he makes it to the second round, he'd have another 30 seconds. Yeah. And he, he could do that. I mean, he is. He could, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he, a world champion. He's a, he's, he's a yeah. world champion. He is. I mean, 
he is a, an elite striker in the world of kickboxing, as well as obviously one of the best strikers in MMA. Sure. He is a physical matchup problem that like it's almost on, on an almost unprecedented level. I mean, he made Israel Anasanya look small and like short, but his pick, his takedown defense is iffy. Like Adesanya rode him for like most of the third round of their fight. Yeah. That position, Nickel chokes him out. Nickel chokes him out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Obviously, I, I'm interested just to see how he looks, like how he looks for the amount of time that they that he chooses to engage in striking with Pickett. Pickett's a good person for him to kind of test those waters a little bit because Pickett's a, a pretty good striker. He has all the tools, but he's not deadly with any of them. Like, you know, Pickett, he, he can kick, he can punch. His speed isn't great. His power is is okay, but short of running straight into a flying knee or unless Nichols chin is just an incredible liability that we're just going to learn about on Saturday because nobody's ever hit him cleanly until now failing that he can test the waters on the feet against Pickett without too much risk. But I'm with you. Once he wants this on the ground, I think he's going to get it there quickly and however he wants and probably a near instant back take. Nickel has that sort of Chris Weidman, Ben Askren thing where once they crossed over to MMA, they looked as if they'd been done the grab that they had been doing the grappling part of it for 10 years. You know, there, there are some wrestlers that never become good grapplers. They never get comfortable being on their back. They never get comfortable being in transitions that feel wrong to a wrestler. You know, that never like, well, I can't do that. I'm going to give up back points. Like, I, 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 yeah, Nichols, I like, it strikes me that he's going to be on, on that level. Uh, like the, the Askren Weidman takes to the grappling part, like a fish to water part. I mean, he's gotten effortless submissions in uh, his last two fights. Granted, they were against sub UFC level guys, but I think that carries over here. Uh, give me nickel by uh, first round submission as well. And the other nice thing about him is as a wrestler, He's been doing this since he was five years old. And as a great wrestler, he's been getting attention for it since he was about 12. He is used to having a mic in his face. Yeah. Uh, he was the star on the premier NCAA wrestling uh, program mm-hmm. of the, you know, of the 2010s so far in, in yeah. Penn State. Uh, he, he was the face of uh, NCAA wrestling, like, I don't know what year it was, but. The 20, 2016 ish, like yeah. the, his last title he won, 2017, maybe. But yeah, because 2019 was when he won the U23 World Champ. So, and so, yeah, he, he's used to having a forest of microphones in front of his face. He's kind of like the people that only really got to know Michael Chandler when he came to the UFC. And they're like, oh man, this feels like having like an NFL star in the UFC, just somebody that has that level of actual polish on the mic, like actual press conference polish, plus being like a witty guy and able to talk like Nickel's going to bring that. And considering that the UFC consistently sticks a mic in your face, if you win, uh, he's going to get plenty of chances to show it off. Just give me Bo Nickel getting uh, the first of probably many breakout moments here. And we'll put this off until the recap. But 
as much as like Keith is driving the bow nickel wagon and I'm sitting like right beside him, like pulling on the horn, we're both going to be stomping on the brakes in the, in the recap because the temptation is going to be to be like, well, how does he do against the top five right now? Even if we think he would beat them, that's not the point. No. Like let the guy learn to be a great martial artist before you have him fight great martial artists. Like, uh, I know we've already talked about this fight like way too long, but just <laughs> I, I want to bring in one thing. Like one of the first people I interviewed for Sure Dog was Michael Venom Page, and yeah. Michael Page fucking rules. Like I and again, this was back when he only had one or two fights in Bellator, and he was really fighting sub level fighters. It was before sure. the Dave Rickles fight, the first time he fought a fighter that was even good in the weight class beneath him. Like okay. and he and I talked to him like, hey, what do you say to the guys that are like, yeah, you're twelve and zero and but you fought nothing but mediocre fighters. Like I didn't say cans cause I'm not going to say yeah. that, but he, he's like, he's like, Oh, I, I get it. He's like, I'm, I'm 12 and 0. And you know what? If Bellator or any of those other promotions had matched me against a more experienced fighter, I might have a loss by now, not because I'm not as good as him, but because I wasn't ready for him at the time. And there'd be no hype around my name at all. If I was 11 and one instead of right. 12 and 0, he's like, yeah. I won. My, he's like, I started training in MMA and I had my first fight six months later and I beat the guy and I knocked him out in the first round. It didn't mean I was a good mixed martial artist yet. He's like, I've gotten time to learn my craft and become a good fighter and do it under bright lights and make good money for it. He's like, I'm not going to apologize to anybody. I understand why they think I, I'm being built up on cans. And he used the word. He says, but once I start fighting the best in the world, they'll find out. And you know what? He was right. I didn't even believe him when he said it and he was right. And, and I double didn't believe it yeah. once uh, Douglas Lima put him <laughs> ass over tea kettle with like one well-placed low kick. The thing that everybody that had ever watched Michael page fight had been like, why didn't somebody just like kick his, that leg out from underneath. Yeah. Him? <laughs> and the guy is now a former Bellator champ. Like Bo nickel needs that chance. Like I want people to be complaining that Bo nickel is being uh, built up on cans you know, when he wins his fifth fight in the UFC and still hasn't fought like a top 10 guy. That's what I I want for him. I have a feeling that's not how it's going to go. I agree with you. I mean, considering that your champ has like like two fights for now, they might keep him away from Shemaev, but he'll be fighting someone like they gave to Shemaev, like a Gilbert Burns type, like two fights from now. I I agree with you. And even if he wins, that's kind of a bummer. Last thing I'll say, uh, Hassan Yazdani the Iranian that uh, David Taylor beat in the Olympic finals and actually beat him the next year at the worlds. Yeah. And then Taylor beat him again at the next Worlds. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's actually kind of a great rivalry going on, but anyway, uh, very long way around to saying that we both have nickel by first round submission. If you, if you think that uh, Pickett's going to pull off the all timer of the upset, please let us know in the comment section here. Yeah, like, post make, it now. Make no. yourself heard. Yeah, post it now. And we will give you all kinds of dap. Hell, I'll I return to old Sure Dog Radio Network days and like bring you in on the recap <laughs> and you can crow all over us. <laughs> Next up on one of the best UFC main cards I can remember in a while is a lightweight matchup between Mateusz Gamrot and Jalen Turner. Gamrot 
the 32-year-old pole is 20 and or sorry, 21 and 2 with one no contest overall. He is 4 and 2 since joining the UFC as a former KSW lightweight and featherweight champ. Uh, he lost his UFC debut in a very close decision to Goran Katadaladze, then rattled off four straight wins over Scott Holtzman, Jeremy Stevens, Diego Fajera, and Armin Sarukian before running into Benil Dariush at UFC 280 last October, where he uh, dropped a unanimous decision. So uh, looking to get back on track, reestablish himself as a top-level contender in the UFC 155-pound division, uh, Gamrot faces off against the red-hot Turner. Uh, Turner, 27-year-old from Southern California, is 13-5 and overall. He is 6-2 and since joining the UFC uh, out of the second season of Dana White's Contender Series, uh, six and two in the UFC, but six and one at uh, lightweight. He made his debut at UFC 229, stepped in and fought Vicente Luque at welterweight. Whew, welcome to the UFC. Uh, got knocked out in the first round, but since then, he has had a pretty good run. Uh, knocked out Callum Potter, dropped a unanimous decision to Matt Frivola, and then embarked on the five-fight winning streak that he is riding until today. Those being... Uh, Josh Kulabau, Brock Weaver, Uros Medic, Jamie Malarkey, and Brad Riddell. The most recent of those, the Riddell fight, was last July uh, at UFC 276. He guillotined him in just 45 seconds. So he's looking to make it six in a row, uh, and he is not favored to get it done. Gamrot, minus 220 uh, as the favorite here. Turner, plus 175. Keith, I'm going to flip this one to you first, but first, I got to admit that I wrote off Jalen Turner after Matt Frivola beat him back in 2019. I said, okay, I, I can see this one coming a mile away. This deadly striker who is a six foot three lightweight that's all legs and Frivola, I mean, they're the tarantula and the steamroller and the fight basically looked like a tarantula versus a steamroller. <laughs> like Frivola just took him down easily, held him down, mauled him for three rounds, like, it wasn't scintillating, but Frivola won all three rounds and none of them were that close. And I said, okay, that that's Turner's cap. If a non-top 15 lightweight with decent but not dominant wrestling can do that to him, he's never going to make anything of himself at uh, lightweight. And the UFC figured out what to do. Just keep feeding him Australians. He's got <laughs> six wins in the UFC and four of them are over Australians. <laughs> There you Callum go. Callum Potter, Josh Coolabal, Jamie Malarkey, and Brad Riddell. Uh, Gamrot, on the other hand, obviously came in with all the expectations. Uh, and he's mostly fulfilled them. Dude, he's four and two, but his two losses were really close decisions to really good fighters. And he's beaten some really good fighters. Uh, who you got in this one? And it's lightweight, so it's hard to say, but would would it shock you to see either of these guys? like as title contenders sometime in the next couple of years. Contenders? No, absolutely not. Um, winners? Well, dude, dude, there's there's nobody that I would say, okay, that's definitely a future champ at 155. Oh, like, yeah. yeah ever. Like, like, give me the best prospect Bo, ever. Bo can't make 155. Exactly. Yeah. Like, um, but, you yeah. know, if he has a tragic snowmobile accident and loses sure. a leg, one-legged uh, Bo Nickel all day over Islam Makachev. Uh, he, he shoots the... He shoots the single leg. No, no, yeah. he, his single leg. Yeah. <laughs> and hey, hey, they had a they had a one legged uh, incidentally champion. Um, 
All right, we're not going to go into a wrestling road. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you said, talked about how good this main card is. He has a fight that is so good that could really headline a, a fight night that no one's no one's even talking about between you know the return of John Jones, Valentina Shevchenko defending her title. Um, Shot got Rockman off, Bo Nickel, like oh, other prospects down the list. Like this one, nobody's talking about it, and both are really good talents. Uh, Gamera is a southpaw who's a great athlete. Uh, he likes to strike in that mid range area. He's got some quick hands. He's technically sound. He's accurate. Throws a lot of straight shots down the pipe. Good footwork. Cuts angles when attacking really well. Switches stances in mid attack, which you know I love. Uh, has good power. Uh, I go back like he he hurt Scott Holtzman. He hurt uh, Armin Sarukian. Uh, defensively, he has has some holes. He he ate a lot of shots from Sarukian. Had a, a lot of shots from Kudalatze, which which I don't like. Um, but he's he's really good on the ground. He's got some fast entries. So good at getting to like the second level of, on the hips when when cutting an angle. Um, he did struggle to get Benil Dariush down. When you're talking about like one of the all-time great grapplers. Um, in that fight, he was kind of diving without any setups. But if he can get in on your hips and kind of create a scramble, he's really good at winning scrambles. Great top game. I mean, he subbed Jeremy Stevens uh, with these. Again, that that win didn't hasn't aged well, but still, like he sudden quickly. Um, he does go for leg locks, which I hate, especially with someone with long arms with like a Jalen Turner who could probably really batter you if you go for something. Um, but if you're on top of him, he's he's hard to hold down. He scrambles. He throws like tons of Grammy rolls. Uh, and he showed really good cardio in his fight against Sarukian in a five-round, very high-paced war. Jalen Turner, I mean, obviously the first thing you think about when you see Jalen Turner is just, like, huge for the weight class, long and lengthy, and he is a deadly striker, very sharp. He does really well to stay on the outside and work his strikes. He just touches until there's an opening, and then he unloads. Um, it, you know, it, the just touching helps with his cardio, and it also helps because he has incredible power. So when he lets it go, um, you know, he could start you. And he's only 27, so he's just coming into his power years. Uh, he throws some hard kicks to the body. Uh, he loves his front kicks, which is so smart for being the guy who's long like him. Uh, he does it to kind of damage and, and also to keep his range. Uh, I've seen him throw down in the pocket, which isn't wise for someone like as long as he is. Uh, but he can wrestle. Like he, He'll sneak in a takedown. Uh, weak defensive wrestler, uh, and he struggles to get back up. But he also likes to grapple on his back. Like he has these long legs, so um, it's a little tougher than your normal guy. You know, putting a guy on his back, they don't usually don't have the legs that an arm reach that Jalen Turner has. Uh, and he's gotten way more takedowns. When you look over his record, he's got way more takedowns than you'll remember. Uh, he's got back. He had back to back submission wins over Brock Weaver and Eros Medish. Uh, he recently subbed Brad Riddell with the guillotine. So I think this is an amazing fight. I'm glad that you mentioned it. Uh, Turner is the finisher on the feet, and he's good in scrambles. Um, he can end the fight in a second. Gamera is so smart, though. And I can't imagine Gamera, who's I think he's an underrated striker himself, um, though we haven't really seen it too much in his last two fights, but... I can't imagine Gamrot not realizing his best bet is turning this into a wrestling match. Um, I've seen him try to wrestle guys that he may have an advantage striking with, 
and, and he still thought he had an advantage in the grappling, so he went to the wrestling. I expect him to close the distance really quickly. I see him out wrestling Turner for 15 minutes. Um, he's he's going to have to, you know, be wary of the submissions come up. And it's definitely when it's on the feet, the flurries. Um, I can see, like, if Turner wins, like, I can see him, like, getting taken down, getting taken down, and finally gets up to his feet and just catches him. But I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to go with uh, Gamera up by decision. All right. I know we've had a pretty long uh, show already, but I'm going to ask you just a quick question before I, I take mine because we're talking about Jalen Turner. Uh, you know, you've covered a number of UFC and Bellator events. You've covered plenty of local shows. You've been around plenty oh, of fighters. Right, yeah. like, like, of fighters that you've actually been face to face or in the same room with, who are the ones that stand out to you as being the biggest for the weight class? They like, I can't believe that fighter um, makes that well, weight I'll, class. Uh, Liam Gary. At, at 205, I, I have no idea how he makes He looks like – not only does he look like a heavyweight, he looks like a guy who would cut down heavyweight. He is huge. Another guy, Linton Vassell, how he ever fought at 205 because he is not a small heavyweight. No. No. Dude, I, he, Those are two he moved up to heavyweight, and he instantly weighed in at like 250 his next time, looking mostly the same. Oh, AJ McKee at 145. Okay. How he, how That's he interesting. Makes, oh, he's huge. He looks like an 85 pounder. He's huge. Um, those are three off the top of my head. Um, UFC, I'm trying to think UFC guys that are really big. Um, I don't know. Those, those are just three that stood out to me. I mean, the, the, like I, 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 I like all. Oh, of them. Dustin Poirier. Oh, Dustin Poirier for sure. I mean, that, that's like well known. It, how, he well, ever, how, how he ever fought at 145? It's like I have no idea. Me he either. Was big for one fifty five. Yeah, and that's something that the tail of the tape will never tell you because, dude, Liam McGeary is six foot five. Like you expect oh, that he's yeah. going to be big for a light heavyweight when you see him. But Dustin Poirier, if you're just looking at his fight fighter photo, he's like, okay, five nine, one fifty five, so whatever. Thick guy, Ex- he's exactly thick. Like, dude, I, I'm I'm five nine, and you know, at my healthiest was around one fifty five. So I mean, I look eye to eye with Dustin Poirier and just. I'm a broad dude and his shoulders are wide yeah, and then he turns sideways and he's the opposite of like Korean fighters like, you know, Dong Hyun Chim or Kim or Du Ho Choi where they got super wide shoulders and they turn and ha- turn sideways and they look like a playing card. Like they're just so narrow front to back. Like Dustin Poirier's like, he's got like a deep chest. Like yeah. he's, he's huge. He's no, totally agree there. Uh, and yeah, anyway, like I, I I could go for a while there, but I was yeah, just curious because sure. I've never been around uh, Jalen Turner. Me neither. But I've been around like Ryan Span a few times, and I think it's probably the same thing as McGeary. Oh, like, I've been around Ryan Span; he's a big dude too. Yeah, yeah, like he's he's not he's not early John Jones, where it's like, oh yeah, he's like tall but skinny. And like, no, he's mm-hmm. big. Anyway, yeah, he's anyway, a big boy. Uh, <clears throat> I'm pleasantly surprised that the Turner has done as as well as he has. Like I just said, I, I wrote him off way too early, um, and I still think his winning streak is due in part to matchmaking. Like he's been matched against a certain level of competition and then a certain type of stylistic matchup. I I don't think he strings together five straight wins against just random UFC lightweights pulled out of a hat. He runs into either a better fighter or a bad style matchup. Uh, But he's fought all the way to a top 10 level fight here in, in Gamrot. So that that's cool. And he being as young as he is, this guy could move all the way up to light heavyweight without being undersized. Like if he put muscle on his frame, like I I'm sure that his best future lies at 170 at some point. 
like, you know, that, that cut's going to eventually be too much as he hits 30, but he's got room to grow. Gamrod is the, the man of the moment uh, in this fight, in this weight division. Speaking of people that I can't believe used to make 145, I can't imagine Gamrot could make 145 if it hadn't been like five years ago and in a place that doesn't ban IVs. It's just all I'm going to say, like, it's not cheating. I'm not accusing him of cheating because in KSW, it wasn't cheating. And he just dropped to 145 because he wanted to say he was a two-division champ. So he did the Dillashaw thing only successfully. He dropped down to 145, beat the champ, relinquished that I, crown and defended his 155 crown again. Yeah, you know? just, just side note, we're way off the track on these things. I, I couldn't care less if someone takes an IV. Like, if that's the quickest way to rehydrate you, and if I de- get dehydrated, you shoot me up with water through an IV as the quickest and safest way. Like, I have no issue with them doing it. I mean, I, I know that a big part of the reason that it's banned, valid or not, is that it makes it easier to mask certain actual PEDs just by okay. quickly diluting your, you know, your next blood sample. Okay. You know, like if there's a certain threshold and all of a sudden you put a liter of fluid into somebody like, dude, you've only got like five liters of blood. So it's literally adding 20 or 25% of your total blood volume. If that drives certain markers below the thresholds, that does enable cheating. But I don't even know how valid that is anymore. That's the pretext they gave in like 2015 or whenever they banned it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Um, yeah. Otherwise, I don't care. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway, uh, Funny thing about both these guys, you, if you just look at their records cold, they both have more like knockouts and submissions. But at the top levels, both of their best weapons are are probably on the ground. Turner, for as huge as he is, is like shockingly fast and fluid in transition on the ground. Yeah. Once good. he got once he got to the ground with like Urosh Medic, his back take was so fast. You'd think that he was like some kind of decorated grappler coming into this, and instead he's a guy that started as a striker and has picked up grappling on the fly. Same thing for Gamrot. I mean, his, I mean, he has a TKO in the UFC, but it was kneeing Diego Fajera in the body when he had just compu- completely humiliated him on the ground. If if Fajera hadn't tapped to that knee shot, he was getting his back taken and getting choked out ten seconds later. So it's an indication of how records are sometimes deceptive. Uh, I see this as mostly probably uh, a ground battle in the making because if it stays on the feet, even if I still favor Gamrot, that gives Turner like his best chance uh, of winning. He he has more power. He has greater reach. Uh, and surprisingly for such a huge guy, he's comfortable at all ranges, but I think Gamrot will be able to get this to the ground. And I think like once we get there, it's a nice grappler in Turner against like a very, very good one in Gamrot. So here's Turner finally running into that elite fighter and tough style matchup that we knew he would eventually. Uh, he might be a top 10 lightweight in the UFC at some point, but we're going to learn on Saturday that he isn't. Give me Gamrot by second round submission here. Third from the top on the UFC 285 main card is a welterweight matchup between Jeff Neal and Shavkat Rachmanov. Neal, the 32-year-old from Central Texas, is 15-4 and four overall. He is 7-2 and two since joining the UFC out of the very first season of Dana White's Contender Series. Uh, he's on a two-fight winning streak. Uh, those have allowed him to bounce back from the first losing streak of his career. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, he dropped back-to-back unanimous decisions to Stephen Thompson and Neil Magny. Those were his first brushes with the UFC Top 10. And while he was competitive, uh, it appeared to have shown his ceiling 
perhaps uh, in the UFC. But since then, he's uh, he has wins over Santiago Ponzinibbio and Vicente Luque. The most recent of those, the Luque fight, was last August at UFC on ESPN Santos versus Hill, where he uh, knocked him out in the third round and reaffirmed himself as uh, you know a, a fringe contender. He will look to make it three in a row against the red-hot Rachmanov. The 28-year-old from Kazakhstan is a perfect 16-0 as a professional mixed martial artist. He's a perfect 4-0 since joining the UFC as a former M1 welterweight champ. Uh, his UFC wins, all of them finishes uh, choked out Alex Oliveira, at UFC 254 in October of 2020, came back and choked out Michelle Preseres in the second round at UFC Fight Night Gone versus Volkov in June of 2021, came back in February of last year, knocked out Carlston Lindsay Harris in the first round, and most recently faced off against Magny at uh, UFC on ESPN, Sarukian versus Gamrot in June of last year. Uh, choked him out in the waning seconds of the second round. So uh, he's looking to make it five in a row uh, in the UFC, 17 in a row to open his uh, mixed martial arts career. He is a prohibitive favorite to get it done. Rachmanov, yet another of the uh, fighters to clock in at at least minus 500 here, as he is minus 500, Neil plus 400 on the comeback. Keith, uh Got a fringe contender, got a red-hot prospect who's looking to mint himself a, a contender here. Obviously, Rachmanov is a, is a huge favorite. Who gets it done here? How do they get it done? And ah, you know what? If necessary, we, we can have more conversation after that. Just let me know how you see this fight. Yeah, the only thing I disagree on that when you said uh, Rachmanov's a prospect, I think after beating Neil Magny, you're not a prospect anymore. You're, you're, you're a contender already. Um yeah, that that's fair. I mean, considering that Neil lost to uh, to Magny. Yeah, yeah, just, it, yeah, it's Neil Magny. I mean, yeah, it's Neil Magny. Guy just stud himself. Um, uh, but Jeff Neil's a tough test. I mean, Jeff Neil, he's he's a southpaw who's elusive. Uh, he's got some good footwork. He's got quick hands. He's very explosive, very accurate. I don't think we talk about how accurate he is enough. Uh, especially his like straight left hand is a beautiful thing. Uh, he will throw his left hand as his lead, and he'll even like double it up his time, like from the rear position, uh, which we don't see a lot. Uh, he throws like rockets down the pipe. So those those things you have to worry about. Uh, he does love his uppercut, which I'm not crazy about, but if he connects, uh, it, it's extremely powerful. He has seriously punch of power, crushing power. Um, I mean, he 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 was knocking uh, Luke a, a bunch of times before he face planted him. Um, he can be gun shy at times. Um, I go back to like the Santiago Ponzinibbio fight. That was a fight that was much closer just simply because of like Jeff Neal's refusal to throw more, uh, even though he was the more skilled fighter. Uh, he has some hard body kicks, uh, crushing high kick, uh, which he will throw after he counter strikes, which I love. Like he'll slip something, throw that. And then like at the end of the exchange while you're trying to, you know, exit, He's throwing that high kick, trying to catch something as you're as, as you're axing out, which is uh, you know very Holly Holm, Ronnie Rousey kind of thing. Uh, though he doesn't do it much, he showed he can wrestle. Like go back to the Nico Price fight, he can get some takedowns. Um, it's hard to get him down. 
uh, and he's got some mean ground upon the top. Now, move over to Rachmanov. We were we were just talking the last segment about big guys. I mean, Rachmanov looks like a light heavyweight out there, even though he fights welterweight. Uh, he's well-rounded, very calm and calculated striker. Um, not tensed at all. Nice jab. He attacks with combos. Has deadly body work. I love that. He crushing power. Uh, he he does defensively back straight up, which is concerning, especially with a power puncher like Neil. Like if he can time time you to catch you as you're backing up, could could catch you and, and hurt you really bad, and maybe even knock you out. Uh, but he will kind of draw you into the cage because of that. He'll use his size really well in the clinch, wear on you. Dirty boxing, a great wrestler. Uh, he loves to get inside, body lock takedowns. His top game against Neil Magny was amazing. Uh, Magny had zero prayer for him <laughs> like on the ground. Uh, he has six submission wins. He subbed Alex Oliveira, Michelle P- uh, P- uh, Pizarris, uh Neil Magny. I mean, he's he looks like another level on the ground. Neil is a serious threat. Someone who punches and kicks as hard as Neil does is always a threat, no matter who they're facing. Uh you know, his speed is a serious problem. His power is a serious problem for anybody. But Rachmanov is so good. He has this incredible confidence around him right now. It, where um not a cockiness, but this um like the best guys have that. Um I think he just walks down nail. I think he lands some of his own hard shots. When he gets in the clinch, I think he looks for some takedowns. I think he I think when he gets in the clinch, he can land some takedowns, land some ground and pound. Uh, I think we might get a late stoppage. Give me a Rachmaninoff third round. I'll say submission. Yeah, I I am on board with everything you threw down there, especially the idea that Rachmaninoff is, you know, he's already beyond the prospect stage. Like he is a contender. Uh, he's fighting on a pay-per-view main card in a fight, you know, between people who are at least top 15, you know, ish here. He's been fortunate in that he came to the UFC, you know, right around the same time as Hamzat Shemaev. And they're about, they've been about equally dominant, but Shemaev just has so much more personality that Rachmanov has been able to keep developing with a little less of the spotlight on him. Like, it's, I think it's been the best possible thing uh, for him. I made, in hindsight, the terrible pick that Alex Oliveira would beat him in his UFC debut and it's because of my usual wait and see thing about people who come in from that part of the world with gaudy records but you know what he ran right over Oliveira on the ground in a way that basically nobody ever had and to my credit I at least learned my lesson quickly and got on the train and nobody since has even made the guy like break a sweat and I mean nobody did for Shamayev either until he ran into Gilbert Burns you know it super elite fighter who's, you know, top five guy and recent title challenger. Rachmanov will get there eventually. He'll get to the fighter who, if not beat him, at least pushes him. And it's possible Neil could be that guy, but as good as Neil is, and there are things that he does at a level that not many other people in the UFC welterweight division do, I don't think it's going to be Neil. I I think Rachmanov is going to run right through him you know, about as easily as he did Magni. It's interesting to look at their respective fights against Magni. And obviously, MMA math is its not infallible, and a lot of times it's not even valid. But Neil 
against Magni, like Neil probably had the advantage on the feet, you know, at least in just terms of power, hand speed, things that have always given Magni problems. And Magni's best route to victory lay with using his wrestling, using the clinch, not letting Neil operate out of boxing range. But the wrestling was almost a push. Like Magni got some takedowns. They weren't easy. Neil got a takedown on Magni. Uh, you know, once like the, the wrestling, I, I'd call it pretty much even. And Rachmanov just ragdolled Magni and then controlled him with ease on the ground. Because the one time Neil uh, took Magni down, Magni got back up very quickly, you know, and it it might have affected the dynamic of the striking for the rest of the fight, but it didn't it didn't uh, establish any dominance in itself. Whereas once Rachmanov took uh, Magni down, that round was over. And then the second round, it rinse and repeat, like complete domination. I have the feeling Rachmanov is going to be able to do that to Neil as well, even if Neil's an underrated, uh, you know, wrestler. And that's a shame because that instantly wipes out all the things that Neil does really well. You you pointed out, uh, you know, one of the best, like, pure punchers in the, the welterweight division has great hand speed, good natural power, and puts it to good use by throwing straight punches in combination like exactly the thing you'd want to do if you have the better hands. Uh, I've said a few times on our previews that the most, one of the most alarming things I've ever witnessed in person was an open workout where Uriah Hall was hitting pads. Well, Jeff Neal was holding those pads and they were taking turns and Neal's own pad work was pretty terrifying to listen to, uh, especially from a guy like a weight class down from, from Hall. Uh, you know, his kicks are fantastic. If slightly underused, probably, you know, because he doesn't want to give up uh, takedown opportunities. But it doesn't matter here. Uh, I think Rachmanov can strike with Neil, and I think he, don't, he doesn't have to. Uh, my, the question to me is, how quickly in the first round does Rachmanov get Neil to the ground? Is Neil already hurt when he gets him down there? And how much time is left in the round? Like, if Rachmanov stings Neil, chases him to the ground, and just locks up a submission in 90 seconds... I won't be shocked if Rachmanov is cautious and calm and they make it all the way through the first round without it ever going to the ground. That wouldn't shock me either. So like those are the, the kind of possibilities I'm looking at, but none of the likely possibilities that I can see end in Neil winning. It would take Rachmanov embracing a really bad strategy or making a real bad mistake. And he's done neither of those things at any point in his career that I've seen either in M1 or in the UFC. Uh, give me Rachmanov by either a submission or TKO on the ground, like late in the first round, I'll, I'll say uh, TKO just maybe, you know, he, he punches away until Neil turtles up and, and they wave this thing off. But uh, another dominant performance for Shavkat Rachmanov over another legitimate top 15 guy. And it will become harder and harder to deny him a serious jump in competition in his next fight. That brings us to the co-main event of UFC 285 a women's flyweight title fight between defending champ Valentina Shevchenko and challenger Alexa Grasso. Shevchenko, the 34-year-old from Kyrgyzstan by way of Thailand, is, or sorry, by way of Peru, by way of Thailand, is 23-3 overall. She is 12-2 in the UFC. She is a perfect 9-0 since dropping to flyweight. Uh, those wins being over Priscilla Cachoeira, Joanna Janjacek, Jessica I, Liz Carmouche, Caitlin Chukagian, Jennifer Maya, 
Jessica Andrade, Lauren Murphy, and most recently, Tyler Santos. At UFC 275 last June, uh, a contentious split decision, certainly the closest fight of uh, Shevchenko's flyweight run. She will look to get back to her ways of utter dominance against Grasso. The 29-year-old Mexican is 15-3 and three overall. She is 7-3 and three in the UFC. She is a perfect 4-0 and oh since moving up to flyweight. Those wins being against Ji Yan Kim, Macy Barber, Joanne Wood, and Viviani Araujo. The most recent of those, the Araujo fight, was a unanimous decision win in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 212 last October. Uh, Grasso will look to make it 5-0 and oh in the division, Snatch the, uh, at this point, longest defended crown in uh, in the UFC at the moment. She is not favored to do so, but for what it's worth, it is not the ridiculous line of most Shevchenko title defenses. Uh, Shevchenko minus 600, Grosso plus 450 uh, as the underdog. Keith, presumably somewhere out there, exists the woman that is going to beat Valentina Shevchenko and take away yep. her title at 125 pounds unless she elects to uh, retire at some point and, and and retire as champ. Her last time out, I mean, I don't know how you scored the fight, but I was on Sherdog's official scoring team, and I scored that one for Santos. I scored it 48-47 for the challenger. Yeah, I'd have to look. I think I did too. Uh, so she at least has started to look human because before that we were scraping for any kind of moral victory. Like it yep. was like we, we we've been doing recaps of her fights for long enough that we were talking about the moral victory of Lauren Murphy, you know, making it yeah. to the fourth round, the moral victory of Jennifer Maya taking a single like, round yeah. off of her. Yeah, right. uh, now it's like, the Rocky thing. You see, she bleeds. She can be beaten. She yeah. is human. Yeah. Uh, she's one of the few people of whom we can say, and let me know if you think of any others, that she might be the best striker and the best grappler in her division. Yeah. In fact, she probably is the best striker and best grappler in her division. Uh, let me know if you think Grosso's got any magic mojo to either duplicate what Santos did or find her own path to victory. Let me know how you think this one plays out. Yeah, the only person I can think of that was like that skilled um, it was probably Demetrius Johnson, the prime Demetrius Johnson. I mean, he's, I still think he's still pretty damn good, but um, not the best grappler in the division because, you know, Henry Cejudo and the wrestling and everything. But I mean, just the. You don't know what he's going to do. He's going to beat you up on the feet. He's going to beat you up on the ground. It, it didn't matter. He was amazing everywhere. Um, and and Amina Nunes can do stuff like that. I mean, there's obviously more people, but just th those two stand above the rest to me um, with the skills that just stand out, uh, you know, because she's so well-rounded. I mean, she's a sharpshooter. They're striking. So many weapons on the feet. Great variety. She never attacks in the same way twice in a row, which I love. Uh, she's she's good at – very similar to what Demetrius Johnson used to do. Uh, very good at changing her rhythm, so it's hard to kind of time her. Good volume, quick twitch strikes, accurate. One of the best jabs in MMA regardless of gender. She understands range so well, so good at getting in and getting out of range flawlessly without getting hit. 
some of the best feints in the game. Uh, she's setting traps with her feints, which she's going to expose later on in the fight. Great at, at timing her opponent's attacks. Uh, good at countering shots. Good at uh, countering leg kicks. Instead of just, and I've talked about this before, she's one of the ones, she doesn't check leg kicks. She wants to destroy you at the point of contact. You come to kick, she's throwing a straight shot down the pipe. Uh, I think she she's an amazing striker, but her offensive grappling, um, I think, might even be even better. Now, that wasn't the case against Talia Santos, um, but we've seen her fight after fight where she's landing, getting in, in the clinch, hitting throws, hitting injuries, great top control, mean ground and pound. Uh, she has seven submission wins. She did struggle to get back up to her feet against Talia Santos, but I want to remind something. And, and again, I, I don't. I, I have to double check. I think I did score for Santos, but despite her looking terrible, she still won a fight. <laughs> you know, against a top contender. And even if you well, scored, are you saying this is her Jones Gustafson one? It might be. That's exactly what I was going at oh. because, even, well, not as bad as going to Jones Gustafson one because I, I'll challenge anybody. Like John Jones did not lose that fight. If you can't find three rounds that he lost. But that said, my point is to build off that similar. At her worst showing, she still won. And in more maybe more of George St. Pierre, um, Johnny Hendricks. Okay. Where you might have scored it for Santos, but even if you scored it for Santos, it wasn't a robbery. Like I tell anybody, watch jo- George St. Pierre versus Johnny Hendricks. I agree that Johnny Hendricks won the fight. Like I scored it to him, but it's not a robbery. Like there was close rounds that George St. Pierre could have easily gave the, the, the fight to George St. Pierre. Um, anyways, we're not gonna, we've already been talking enough. Uh, Grasso, Grasso, she's she's a traditional kickboxer. Uh, she's very technical. She's got good volume. Uh, she smoked Carolina Kovacavich with just using her volume. Uh, she showed really great cardio in her last fight to be able to keep her volume against Arujo for the entire fight. Uh, good footwork. She avoids strikes by simply just not being there. That's that's her thing. She wants to get in and get out before you counter. She's got some quick hands. She busted up a Rougeau with a jab. Uh, she attacks uh, with bursts of combos and then gets out before the counters. Uh, I like her kicks, a good kicking game, uh, especially when she doubles up. She'll like go low and then go high. So she'll like she'll throw like a low kick on the left side and then high kick on the other side. Uh, she was taken down a lot by Carlos Espaza. Uh, but to her credit, so as <laughs> pretty much anybody Carlos Espaza has fought or, or many people Carlos Espaza has fought. Uh, but Vivian Arujo couldn't take her down. Uh, and even when she's taken down and even in the Carlos Espaza fight, she, she did well to get back to her feet. Um, she threw up some submission attacks, almost submitted Carlos Espaza. So um, I, th- I think this fight is much closer like I'm not as confident in this fight. I think it's much closer than I would have guessed if you if you asked me this one year ago from today. Um, Grasso's good, um, but I'm still believing in Shevchenko. I I still think Shevchenko is elite of the elite. I think her strike is so crisp, uh, especially when she gets her kicks going, uh, especially with that like spinning back kick, which is funny that early on I, I said I don't like spinning attacks, but few people she's one of them that she's just so good at it. Uh, Grasso is underrated on the ground, but Shevchenko is so tough on top. Uh, 
I really think the Santos fight was n- not a fluke that Santos could beat her, but I mean the th- the like how how Shevchenko looked on the ground. I think is a little flukish. So uh, so I, I don't know if that, I, if people will interpret what I'm saying right. Like not that Santos can't beat Shevchenko, but I'm just saying like I, I just think Shevchenko is better on the ground than she showed that night. I say she beats Grasso everywhere. Uh, for the majority of the fight until she eventually finds a finish. I say she gets a finish in the fight. I think she really wants to make a statement after that Santos fight too, especially being that, you know, she struggled against Santos. Aaron Blanchfield just made a statement uh, where a lot of people were asking her about, you know, that fight. Uh, Suarez is back in the division. Grasso is, you know, the younger fighter. So uh, give me Shevchenko to win by third round stoppage. Uh, I'll say by TKO. Yeah, I, obviously, anytime, you know, the most dominant fighter in the sport shows any gaps in the armor, I'm looking at the next fight. And certainly part of it is what you, you say. Is she going to come out with something to prove the next time? Like, prove that, yeah, I haven't gone anywhere. I had, I had one bad night at the office. I'm still, like, the, the woman to beat. And then the flip side is always, okay, did Tyler Santos lay out any kind of blueprint to lay out any kind of blueprint, you know, that other people specifically Grasso can follow, you know, same as when Alex Volkanovsky fought Islam Makachev just a a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. He took Makachev to the wire. Uh, How many people, you know, can, can duplicate that? How many people were taking notes saying, Oh, I, I can do that. The things that Santos did uh, to Shevchenko, I don't see Grasso being able to follow that plan. Like a lot of it was Shevchenko just seeming kind of uh, uncharacteristically inert and vulnerable, especially on the ground. And then part of it is Santos is probably the first person Shevchenko has fought at 125 pounds who was at least as big as she is and at least as athletic. Shevchenko's always been like physically stronger, faster, more athletic than her opponents. Like sure. Jessica Andrade is incredibly explosive and strong, but uh, much smaller than Shevchenko. Yeah. Uh, Jukagi, yeah. was smaller than her. Yeah. Caitlin Jukagian is taller and has longer arms. Not but explosive. Not explosive. Not physically pick you up and slam you powerful like Shevchenko is when she yeah. wants to be. And Grasso isn't going to be either. These are two women that... By the tail of the tape, they're probably going to be close to identical. They're both going to be 5'5". They're both going to be 125 pounds on the dot. They're both going to have comparable reach. But they're coming at this division from two opposite directions. Grasso moved up from 115 because she wanted to. Not even because she had to because she like blew weight a bunch of times. It's like, I, I, I want to move up to 125. I feel better there. Whereas Shevchenko is like, oh, there's finally a division for me and I don't have to beat my head against Amanda yeah. Nunes anymore, yeah. even if I might have yeah. beaten her like that that second time that fight was terrible though yeah, yeah it, but like i i think this is going to be a, a a remind us moment for shevchenko uh okay. i think shevchenko stands to do well in the striking like she's still like a very crisp muay thai striker with tons of power uh generally hard to hit cleanly but she's back to having if, if she's back in you know, the form of, of uh, a year ago, she's going to be back to having that thing in her, her back pocket. 
I can take this to the ground if and when I want to, or I can force the clinch and maul you there with just my superior strength and my just some of the nastiest like phone booth knees. Uh, you know, I, I in you know in the sport, let alone the women's divisions, there just aren't going to be any comfortable or safe places for Grasso in this fight. Her, I mean, her best route to victory is engaging Shevchenko in a kickboxing match at kickboxing range and outlanding her there. Yeah, good luck. That, good luck with that. <laughs> and even if she's like out striking her like three to two in, in each round, the power differential, it, it's yeah. going to like, it's going to outweigh any striking differential. And that's assuming that she would be able to, to out volume her, which there's no guarantee. And yeah. again, no. lesser fighters than Shevchenko have gotten Grasso to the ground, have, you know, continually like stayed inside her kicking range and forced her into, into uh, those inside fights. Those are both places where Shevchenko has huge advantages. Uh, I mean, even her recent loss aside, I still think Amanda Nunez is the, the nastiest phone booth fighter in the history of the sport. Uh, and, and Shevchenko is up there. Like she's, she's, in, she's in the team photo and it's funny cause it's something that she doesn't even use that often, but just anytime someone tries it or they end up there, they just end up regretting it really badly. You know, it's usually yeah. knee, knee, elbow, ragdoll. This is over. Like the, the only fight. person I would put over man in this might be, might be um, Randy Gotor. Okay. Yeah, I I Daniel I can agree Cormier. with that, but different era, different weight class. Yeah, Daniel Cormier was pretty damn good at that too. Yeah, but like Daniel Cormier, yeah, like, and I don't, I didn't even say best for Nunes. I said scariest. Oh, okay. Like this to be a 135 pound woman, and like her, she grabs <laughs> yeah, that double collar tied Vanderlei Silva style and starts kneeing you. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't want yeah. that. I, yeah. Uh, for a specific, I, I think we're going to be back to looking for little glimmers of hope or redemption in a dominant performance. I was actually going to say Shevchenko by third round stoppage as well. And I suspect it's going to take place on the ground after she's hurt Grasso on the feet, probably crushed Grasso to the body a few times in the first two rounds. Uh, I'll say she gets it done by third round submission. Just Grasso is valiant. She's super tough. Uh, she, For what it's worth, she does deserve the title shot. I think, you know, she's probably the best yeah, yeah. choice for right now, but yeah, I, I think it's going to be back to the, the Valentina Shevchenko show. And at least for now, that Santos fight is going to, you know, look like, you know, a bump in the road. And who knows, maybe Shevchenko defends three or four more times or they run in or she runs into Santos again and we get something more definitive. Uh, yeah, Shevchenko by third round submission. That brings us to the main event of UFC 285. John Jones and Cyril Gaon for the UFC heavyweight title. Jones, the 35-year-old New York State native by way of New Mexico, is 26-1 and one with one no contest overall. He is 20-1 and one with one no contest in the UFC. He is, of course, the former multi-time light heavyweight champ. He uh, never lost that title in the cage he lost it in the lab uh he lost it by dropping it off and declaring his intention to move up to heavyweight but at least technically guy never lost the title his most recent appearance of course was just over three years ago uh 
He was in the headliner of UFC 247 down here in H-Town, where he took a contentious unanimous decision over Dominic Reyes. Uh, since then, it's been nothing but rumor, myth, uh, promises of a return, occasional Instagram pictures of him looking increasingly muscular. Uh, but it's finally come, and knock on wood, uh, he makes the walk to the scale, makes the walk to the cage, and we finally see the man in action that many observers think is the greatest ever to do this thing. Welcoming him back to the UFC is a man who the last time Jones fought was 3-0 and in the UFC. Cyril Gaon has fought six more times since then and won a UFC interim uh, heavyweight title. The 32-year-old Frenchman that they call Bon Gamin, that just means good boy, good kid. That's another nickname that probably won't age well. You know, once he's 40, will they just call him good man? I, I don't know. Anyway, uh, he is 11-1 and overall. He is 8-1 and one in the UFC. Uh, after those three wins I just mentioned, he beat Jairzinho Rosenstrike, Alexander Volkov, Derek Lewis. That would be for the uh, interim heavyweight title. He lost the unification bout to Francis Ngannou last January at UFC 270, uh, his first professional loss. Bounced back from that in September in the headliner of UFC Fight Night 209, uh, completely dominating Tai Tuivasa on the way to a third-round knockout. Despite the long layoff, Jones is a moderate favorite coming into this fight. He is minus 155, gone plus 135. Keith, we we talk a lot about how difficult it is to predict a fight where one or both fighters have been off for over a year. Yeah. yeah. I mean, let alone when they've been off for over three years and they're coming back in a different weight class and they're debuting yeah. in that weight class or fighting in that weight class for the first time in, in the UFC. I mean, I, I understand why John Jones is the favorite. He is, especially by the standards yeah. of 205 and heavyweight, very much in his physical prime. So I understand why he's the favorite, but talk about your unknowns. Uh, Gone is much more of a known quantity, but there are still question marks about him because he blasted Tai Tuivasa, but before that he had his first loss in the UFC, his first loss as a pro, and it was by Francis Ngannou showing a complete new wrinkle to his game, and it leaves the question, okay, kind of like I said about Valentina Shevchenko, is that something that a lot of heavyweights could do? Is it something that John Jones could do? In the face of all these unknowns, I go to what the knowns are. Nobody has beaten Cyril Gaon in a, in a striking match in the UFC or in TKO, like up in Canada before then. And generally speaking, the people who've tried have barely laid a finger on him. The people that forced a confrontation with him ended up staring at the lights. He embarrassed Derek Lewis. He embarrassed Tai Tuivasa. And bo in both cases, because Lewis and Tuivasa like forced a fight out of him. The people who didn't just end up getting snake charmed. Jairzinho Rosenstrike, Alexander Volkov, yep. two of the better strikers in the division. I, I mean, sure. neither of them is perfect, but Volkov is huge and is one of the greatest big men in history at using his, his uh, sure. height and reach. Jairzinho Rosenstrike is an absolute savage hitter that has one strike fight finishing power, even by heavyweight standards. And those guys ended up staring at 
gone the whole time, mostly just kind of staring at his feet. Both of them spent like five rounds kind of bouncing around, looking at Gon's feet like somebody who's like Xbox controller had like run out of charge. And they're just like. So it's been choose your poison for everyone except for Francis Ngannou. And Ngannou beat Gon by taking him down repeatedly and getting like emphatic mat returns where he like just picked Gon up, took his back standing and slammed him back down over and over again. I mean, the striking that there was, was, was more or less a wash. So on the one hand, I'm asking, okay, are those things that John Jones can do to surreal gone or is likely to do? And then on the flip side, I'm, I look at Jones. I think he's the greatest fighter of all time. You think he's the greatest fighter of all time. Yep. I think there's a good argument that he should be on a two fight losing streak right now. His last two fights in the UFC against Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes, about a third of people I talk to think Santos beat him, and about two thirds of people I talk to think Reyes beat him. So even though they're technically yeah, wins, even though they're technically wins, I look at those fights and I go, okay, what did Jones do to either lose those fights or not win them uncontroversially enough to, you know, have people not saying this? In the Santos fight, it's that he decided to get in a leg kicking contest with a guy with the best leg kicks in the sport at the time, maybe. Yeah. And and almost obstinately refused to bring the fight to the ground. It, it would have, should have been available at any moment. He was taking on a guy with terrible defensive wrestling and a serious size disadvantage to him. And Jones just kind of hung out trading leg kicks and not checking them very well. And both guys blew their knees out that fight. Santos has never been the same fighter again. So, I mean, some sort of, I mean, there, there's some sort of consolation prize there that like the win over Santos hasn't aged well, mostly because Jones destroyed Santos's career that sure. night. Yeah. And, and then the Reyes fight, he just came out kind of listless against a guy who was just as big as him and actually seemed fresh, fresher and faster to the punch yeah. and just lost three rounds out of five. But yeah, if Francis Ngannou can beat John Jones or can beat Cyril Gon with takedowns, presumably John Jones at least could, but considering that Jones is coming off a fairly recent fight where he arguably lost by refusing to take a fight to the ground that he could have. And now he's 40 pounds heavier and four years older. Do I think he will in my mind? I think, Oh yeah. You know, John Jones is one of the greatest wrestlers in the history of the sport, you know, but just tends to underuse it. But now I'm even like he underuses it to such an extent and has done so for so long that why do I even still think he is one of the greatest wrestlers in the history of the sport? When were the fights when I decided that was the case and how long has it been since then? It's been a long time. Like, I mean, I definitely came to that thought when he was, I mean, the last time I thought, oh, man, Jones is a great wrestler is in the Cormier fight, the first Cormier fight. First Cormier, yeah. yeah, where Cormier couldn't take him down, and he took Cormier down just to kind of, like, stick it in his face. Yeah. Like, that was 2015. He only did it really to – he only did the offensive wrestling part to prove a point. Like, the rest of the fight, he would just been kind of piecing up Cormier on the feet. Because if you – I mean, I didn't have notes on John Jones – in 2015, but if I had them, one of my big notes would have been at any moment when he wants to, he can grab an overhook, underhook, just tip 
his opponent over onto the canvas and elbow the living shit out of him. You know, kind of like Fedor, his takedowns and ground and pound were the scariest part of his game. And they were the thing he could always fall back on while he tested his luck striking. That was a long, long time ago. So I have to answer two questions now. Does he see beating gone or does he see the takedowns as his best route to beating gone? And if he does, can he even make that, that happen in his current physical, you know, condition with his layoff? Because as good of a striker as he's become, and he's another one like Shevchenko, where you can make an argument that in his prime, he might've been the best striker and the best wrestler in, you know, in his division, even if like both of them were very unorthodox. If Jones says, no, I'm just going to keep it on the feet for five rounds. Does it, does he just end up being the next guy who has to choose either stare at Gon's feet or stare at the lights? Jones is the favorite here, but I don't have him in this fight, man. I, wow. I, I, am, <laughs> I am extremely wait and see about this. I'm wow. going with some intangibles here, but you know what? When I'm trying to predict a fight of a guy who's been gone for three years and, and again, is coming in up a weight class, mm. you have to go with intangibles. And on top of everything else, the way Jones's approach to the game has changed because as late as the Anthony Smith fight, I would have said Jones is one of the smartest fighters in the history of the sport. Sure. Like just comes in with great game plans. I mean, yeah. he was the perfect pupil for, uh, uh, for Greg Jackson. Jackson was the, you know, like the best coach in the sport for, you know, most of Jones's reign came up with great game plans and Jones played them to perfection. The Anthony Smith fight was the first time I, I ever saw him make a bad mistake in the cage. He committed a foul that if Anthony Smith was a dick, Jones would have lost his title that night. Sure. Then in the the Santos fight, he just flat out came in with a weird game plan and made a fight that should have been a one-sided shellacking closer than it needed to be. I have to have faith that that guy is going to come in with the right game plan and be able to implement it after three years off. Oh, and by the way, time off has not generally been John Jones's friend over the entire course of his career. Generally speaking, when Jones doesn't have a hard deadline ahead of him, he fucks around and does stupid things. And then... (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah, and this fight is in Vegas, too. After They were never going to have him be in Vegas again. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, I'm having to make this pick in the presence of a bunch of unknowns. But all the variables that I can I can see lean towards Gon. Wow. Gon's, been, Gon's fought six top heavyweights since the last time we saw Jones at all. Only one of them even came close to him. That, of course, is Nganu, the guy that I think is the best heavyweight in the world right now. And while Nganu beat him in a way that we'd never seen done to Gone before, I no longer have any faith that Jones is going to be able to follow that pattern. And if Jones just tries to stand and strike with Gone or has no choice but to stand and strike with Gone, Jones is going to lose. Until wow. I see someone win a striking match with Surreal Gone, I'll. I'll, I'll wait. Gimme gone by a surprisingly one-sided decision in a surprisingly not explosive fight. It's going to, it's going to go back to being a, it's going to be a surreal gone fight. Wow. There's a, uh, 
Oh, there's a there's a lot to talk about. So um, we didn't go over our grades. Um, I'm gonna give this card an A, but I'm not giving I'm not giving an A plus. And the reason why is simply is um, he's not John Jones isn't coming back facing Francis Ngannou. Sure. You know when we talk about the recap on the recap show, if John Jones wins, we're asking the question: Is either best heavyweight in the world? We're not calling him the best heavyweight in the world. Sure. And if Cyril Gon wins, we say, oh, right, Cyril Gon's second best heavyweight in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, what would happen in a rematch against Francis Ngo? So that's why it, it doesn't get an A+. I've heard a lot of people say, like, what happens to the legacy of John Jones if he wins? What happens to the legacy if he loses? To me, it feels, and I, I know I bring this guy up a lot, but we're talking about goats, so whatever. I'm from knowing that. It feels to me like Tom Brady going to the Bucks. Like it only strengthens his legacy. It doesn't hurt it at all. Like if John Jones loses at 35, moving up to heavyweight, like I'm still gonna have him as the greatest fighter of all time. Sure. It would be he, it would be much worse if he came back at light heavyweight and got plunked by a top ten guy. Like they just here's a knock the rust off fight, beat sure. this guy, and you're fighting for the title, and he gets he gets plunked by and some even and even that doesn't hurt his legacy that much either. But like he wins, he wins the title at heavyweight. It helps. Again, again, there's there's gonna be uh, he didn't be Francis Ngano fine. But like I already think the debate is over, but it's just it's just Brady getting his seventh ring. That's what it's like it's just it, like insult injury. It's just like more greatness. Um is it like GSP coming back against Bisping? Like if Bisping had jabbed him up real good yeah. for five rounds, like GSP is still if you thought GSP was the goat before, you still think he is. Sure. Yeah. If he lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Jones is taking some chance, though, not in the sense of, you know, his legacy, but what he can go forward in his career, because if he loses, I mean, if it's a really close fight and go either way, sure. But if he loses convincingly, he can't go back down to light heavyweight. He's good. He put too much muscle on it. I don't think he could ever get back down to that weight class. So it's either he continues to compete at, at heavyweight or there's a good chance he just retires if he loses. Here's a, I mean, here's a, you make a good point because even if Jones had stayed busy, like if he, you know, if he'd fought four more times since that, uh, uh, the Dominic Reyes fight, there's a good chance he, he might have moved up to heavyweight anyway. Yeah. You know, without this, this big delay. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I'll say, Francis got obviously, it, it seems like them him and the UFC are not going to get something together, especially with his boxing interest and different stuff. And I know some, you know, Scott Coker said this week that he's talking to him and I just, I just, I can't see that happening. I, I think it's either he's going on his own or, or he goes back to the UFC. If John Jones wins, John Jones, the, like he needs to make one of those. And it's Silva. You absolutely suck speeches. Matt, Matt Hughes, I'm not impressed with your performance. One of these memorable, you know, Connor, you you take everything I work for. He needs to say, Francis, I'm the best guy. I'm the baddest on the planet. I'm the goat. You're a bitch. Like he needs to like go like that. Challenge, challenges manhood, some kind of thing like that. And um, you know what? Ngannou is exactly the kind of guy that'll work on. It, maybe, maybe you know. But you you ran away from me. This kind of thing. You knew I was coming. You ran. Um. It, because that fight, could you? Could, if John Jones wins, could you imagine the magnitude of that fight? So who wins? You made really good points. 
I think I I appreciate you saying that right before you spend the next little while just completely destroying them. I, I might not, man. There's a lot of change. You you made a lot of points that and not a lot of people not talking about. There's a lot of changes. One, John Jones is 35 years old. We always think of John Jones as a 23 year old winning the title. He's 35 now, and yeah, he's been out for a long time, and and maybe he was done at 32 and not 35. We don't know that, but um, when we when the names get associated with John Jones. Like if, if we were playing like the pyramid game and I was trying to describe John Jones and I'd say Daniel Cormier, Greg Jackson, uh, uh, Rashad Evans, you know, all these, all these things, they're all gone. Every single person associated with John, they're all gone. I, I mean, I obviously understand that Greg Jackson is, but you know what I'm saying? Like he, yeah. you, you said he was the greatest coach in the world. He still might be, he, he might be, but, but, but think of the, I mean, think of the fall from grace of just the general public profile of that gym exactly. since the last time Jones fought. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. That's Peroni left and just lit everything on fire yeah. since then. Yeah. And just the whole, the whole, just, but you know, 10 years ago, if you said, who's the greatest MMA coach, it was a no brainer. It's Greg Jackson that I don't know if he wins the vote now. No, <laughs> you know? no. He, I, um, he, he might not, he might not come into the top five. Yeah, you might not come in my top five right now. Being at heavyweight definitely is the weight class that ages, you know, isn't as big of a thing. Like it, you, you know, you can hang on a little bit longer. But one thing I've always said about John Jones that I'm always been concerned about is what he's done to his body: cocaine and partying and all the other stuff we don't know about. That stuff catches up to everybody. He's not even, he's not even just unnecessarily hard weight cuts from not training as hard as he could have. Could stuff like that. Yeah. And then obviously partying and and, and drugs and we've seen him be drunk and you know. Um that catches up to everybody. So that's concerning. Um he he's ta- one thing I say about John Jones and his greatness is I think he's the greatest fighter of all time. You think he's the greatest fighter of all time. He also took years as his prime off. Like, could you imagine if he didn't? Could you imagine if he had four or five more title defenses under his belt? Like, holy crap. Four years of his prime in a couple of suspensions. Yeah. And then these, and then this last three years in what is near prime if he intended to be heavyweight the whole time. There's about seven years of his, this run that he really didn't compete in, like, which is crazy. Dude, Cormier and Miocic are two of the five greatest heavyweights of all time. Probably, and mm-hmm. their entire like legendary runs happened after age thirty-five. There you go. Yeah. So, 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 yeah. The age might not be that big. He could still be there, but who knows? But the mileage. But another thing we're not yeah. talking about. We were just talking about his team. He's left that team. He's changed teams. He's training in it. Like you know, I know he's trained a little with Henry Sudo and the Fight Ready guys, and he's mm-hmm. You can't get a straight answer where he's training. Um, a lot of it's supposedly training in his own garage or gym or whatever he made, which is concerning. You know, bringing in guys like some of the guys he's bringing in to train with Dontel Mays. I know, he, I know, he brought in um, Jorgen De Castro. Like these are the guys he's training with. So you're bringing in like some of the worst heavyweights in the UFC or yeah. formerly no, in the UFC to fight have, the best heavyweight left in the UFC. Yeah, I don't have the full. These are the guys he trained. So maybe he's brought in some killers too. I don't know, but. But the point is, is he's not an, an established team. We don't know, really know who he is. You mentioned his last two performances, Tiago Santos and Dominic Reyes. Um, they weren't great performances for John Jones' level because we're so used to him just destroying everybody. 
But also, like regardless of how he looked, they haven't aged well at all. I mean, yeah, you could say John Jones, Bruin, Thiago Santos very well could be the case. But like Dominic Reyes, that that win hasn't aged well at all either. Reyes hasn't won again since. Yeah, and then he's moving up to the heavyweight. There's so many what ifs about this guy. There's as many what ifs of anybody in the history of fighting. I mean, probably maybe since Dominic Cruz came back against TJ Dillashaw, but it might even be bigger than that um, because he's changing weight classes. Now, we talk about the skills, and I have to base it off of what I've last seen with John Jones or what I've seen recently, you know, or his last recent fights, which is not recently, obviously, but um, he's always been the master of pace. He sets a pace, and everyone fights at his pace. Um, he stalks his foe. He uses a lot of pressure. Even the Dominic Reyes fight, he was pressuring him, forcing Reyes on his bike the whole time. He can fight out of both stances. Uh, he's an underrated pocket boxer, um, and that's because he keeps everything he keeps everything tight. Um, he's really good at keeping his head off the center line. He understands his range really well, and he moves his head well. He's, 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 John has always been a hard guy to hit clean. He pulls his head, and, and, and obviously he's so long and lengthy, it's kind of hard to connect. Um, but he doesn't get hit very clean often. Uh, obviously, he's got long, rangy kicks. Uh, his high kick, he dropped Daniel Cormier in that, that second fight. Great body kicks, great teep kicks. Um, he loves the inside leg kick. Uh, he has that Holly Holm sidekick he does. He does some spinning back kicks. Uh, he does check leg kicks. Though in the Dominic Reyes fight, uh, he had some success with the kicks, and so did Tiago Santos. Um, had some success with the kicks, um, and that and one reason is he's got such big, long targets. Uh, some of the negatives he, <laughs> for a guy who's like the best ever, he's a little flat-footed. Um, he's never been particularly fast. Even young John Jones wasn't like blazing fast hand speed. Uh, he's never been a one-punch fight-ending power guy. Uh, he more of a bust you up. Now, he's – I hate to say this, but he's hes the—he's like the meanest fighter in MMA history. Uh, you know, go back to like that arm wrench he did to Glover Teixeira, the oblique kicks that he's done to everybody, which is something that he, I, I think could be a huge success for him against Sirogan, especially a guy who likes to move. His, his accidental eye pokes – that happens <laughs> a lot. Um, now, someone's going to say, oh, you're a John Jones hater. Like, you never don't know my history. <laughs> sure dog and John Jones. I'm hardly a John Jones hater. I've been accused uh, of being the complete opposite when it comes to John Jones. Uh, he will wrestle. He will shoot. But a lot of times, they're reaching takedowns, if we're being honest. Uh, he struggled. He, he didn't go for takedowns against Tiago Santos, and he struggled to get Dominic Reyes down. Remember him uh, getting Reyes down, but he couldn't keep him down? Now, if he gets on top, you mentioned legendary ground and pound, like, like the best ever. The, the I think he's, you know, it was always like a debate, like, you know, was Fedor the best? I think John Jones' ground and pound is even better than Fedor's. He also has a legend, legendary chin. Through his entire career, We've never really seen him hurt bad where he was rocked. Oh, my God. John Jones' legs buckled. We've never had that moment where it seems like he's about to get knocked out. Sure, he's been tagged a couple times. DC tagged him a little bit. Uh, Gustafson, Reyes, obviously. But no one's had him hurt. But um, Some of the things that he has, he has high-level experience in cardio go 25 minutes. Um, 
though we have to question his cardio being that he has added this extra muscle will that change will that change how the way he fights the way you know how he conserves his energy hey um, real quick what do you think he weighs in at that's a good question because i don't know i really don't know i think it's going to be at least 240 i agree i agree and i mean somebody in the sure dog editorial huge. slack put it put in uh just guess what jones is going to weigh in at and they they made the rule nobody can pick the same number so it's spreading oh okay you know? i didn't but, see that okay but right, on the lowest end it's like okay. 237 and on the highest end some like some people are in the low 250s because the thing yeah. is i don't think it'd be that high but yeah if he that, came that, in that, that'd be bad if he's that high if he came in in shape for the say the reyes fight if he came in in shape but no water cut i bet he comes in at 230 so yeah. he's like 237 is not enough yeah, and then add an extra ten, at least ten pounds, ten fifteen pounds. Well, yeah, two forty five maybe. Yeah, two two. He won't be in the two sixties. That that ain't happening because the um that'd be insane. Um, if he weighs in heavier than Gone, I'm. What is Gone like? Gone usually comes in around uh, 248, 250, 255. I think it'd be a little bit lighter than that. Maybe if he comes in heavier than Gone, I'm not a betting man, but man, I, I, I <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't think he'll be that heavy. I think he'll be 243. I'll say that. Two, put it down to 243. There you go. Which is still pretty big. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and the, yeah. Uh, and another thing about John Jones, besides never being hurt, he's always been mentally strong. Even when everything is going wrong in the fight, he never panics. He stays calm. He finds a way around it. He finds something that's going to work for him um, and, and, and adds that. Like the Dominic Reyes, even when he wasn't getting takedowns, he got enough to win rounds and, and ultimately win him the fight. Now, Cyril Gaon, you move up to him. Uh, fantastic athlete. He, you you talked about his movement. He's a welterweight that uh, – I mean, he's, sorry, he's a middleweight that moves like a welterweight. When he, weigh out the, he weighs out there. He understands range well. Where he doesn't use range with the striking, he's with his footwork. He's so good at keeping his range with his footwork. We talked about John Jones being a master of pace. Cyril God is the same way. You talked about like snake charming people. He wants a slow pace outside kickboxing match. That's what he wants. He keeps his opponent guessing by fighting out of both stances. Uh, he's very relaxed, very composed on the feet, good vision, fast hands, accurate. He sets up his shots with feints, a good jab. He'll actually double it up. A nice straight right. He's, he'll either throw a straight right or sometimes he'll throw a straight right. And the next one will be like this overhand right. Um, he attacks with combos. Uh, he's one of these guys who, who changes his stance mid combination to give different angles. He sidesteps when he's attacking. Um, so he like attack with one thing and then sidestep. So he's going to throw it at a different angle. Um, some great body work. He isn't one of the biggest power punching guys in the division, but he does have power when he sits and he commits. He's kind of playing the cat and mouse thing where he's kind of chasing you. But if he sits and, and, and throws, I mean, you ask Tai Tuivasa, he, he, can, he can knock you. Um, great kicking game, uh, front kicks, body kicks, leg kicks, step in knees. He, everyone's dogging his wrestling, but he will wrestle. You know, he's not a strong wrestler, but um, and when he's on top, he controls well, and he's and he's got some ground, high ground pound, but he's a weak defensive wrestler. Um, he struggles to get off the bottom. We saw that against Francis Ngano. Uh, he does have some submissions, so that could happen. I really, I, I'd be really surprised he submits John Jones. But well, I mean, Dante Mays is there, so he can teach Jones like how to yeah. avoid the heel hook. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but one thing I want to say about about um, Cyril Gan 
he showed terrible fight. for a guy who's so good with his fight IQ on on the feet. He showed terrible fight IQ against Francis Gano in a close fight when he goes for a heel hook. Where if he doesn't go for the heel hook, we might be talking about like the undisputed champion right now. Because um, yeah, Francis Gano had to come from behind and use his wrestling and steal the last three rounds. There's a lot of question marks about John Jones, um, but he's so extremely intelligent in the past. Um, he con- constantly finds ways to rise to the moment, even when um, it isn't the prettiest performance. He still finds a way to win. I think he's going to be the slower fighter. I think Gone will be faster, especially at heavyweight. Um, I don't know who has the power, but I'm probably going to guess Gone. He will have a massive advantage in the wrestling, but we're on the same page. I haven't seen him wrestle in forever. And we've talked about this past wrestling fades. It's a hard thing to do, especially as you get older, especially get less explosive. Uh, and Gano isn't known for his wrestling, but he was able to get that gone down with, with ease. So if Jones takes him down and holds him down, I, I wouldn't be surprised. But I, John Jones can add all the muscle in the world, and he's going to be more technical than Francis Gallo at wrestling. But is he? He's he can add all the muscle in the world. He's not going to be stronger than Francis Tangano. Um, and you know he isn't the striking threat of Francis Tangano, the one punch that would really kind of set up these positions where you know Gone is so worried about the big power shots coming at him. Um. I think he's going to have a hard time catching Gon too, like trapping him. I think Gon's going to be moving. Um, he, Gon's going to have to play and stick with the in and out game for 25 minutes. I think he can do that too. I was the original John Jones backer on the Sherlock site. I mean, like li- literally, like I was the first person talking about John Jones on the Sherlock Radio Network. I called him up. I said, "Guys, John Jones will be the next big thing." I was pumping him before. Anybody, and, because and that's what he was like three and zero in the Northeast. Yeah, because I seen him, I seen him yeah. in person. I was like, "Who the hell is this dude?" Um, but for the first time in his career, I'm going against John Jones. I'm I'm with you, man. We're both going with the upset. I'm going with Cyril Gon. I think it's going to be a slow paced fight. I think he's going to move. I think it's going to be a little bit of like that Tiago Santos fight, where it's not the most action packed, most most exciting. It, it, Anthony Smith fight was another fight that wasn't the most exciting. And uh, I think John Jones is going to suffer his first real defeat in his career. Give me a surreal gun by split decision. All right. There we go. And then if that plays out, if it plays out as both of us seem to think, uh, we will devote most of the recap to kind of a first approximation preview of John Jones versus Parker Porter 2, which will be the most obvious match to make uh, the, the rematch, you know, over a decade in the making. That's it. For the Sherdog Radio Network preview for UFC 285, Gone versus Jones, I've been Ben Duffy. He has been Keith Schillen. If this is your first time watching or listening to one of our previews, first of all, thank you. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. We hope you enjoyed it. We do our best to bring uh, a solid mix of actual analysis, historical context, and the occasional meandering asides into history or trivia or whatever Uh Maybe not quite as much of that this time, just because we knew this was a 14-fight card with a couple of massive conversations at the top of it. But uh, do like, subscribe, leave us a comment. 
if you're watching this on YouTube, Keith and I both man that comment section and we're both good about uh, responding. You know, if you think we're out of our gourds on the main event pick or any of the others, let us know. Make your voice heard. Definitely, if you think Jamie Pickett is going to expose Bo Nickel and derail this whole hype train, make your voice heard now. We will shout you out on (laughs) the recap. Speaking of the recap, join us on the recap. We will be live on the SureDog YouTube page, as we always are, about 10 minutes after the main event, where we will talk about all 14 of these fights in reverse order. Keith takes the captain's chair. We'll start with the main event, go all the way down to that short notice first prelim, and we will talk about what's good, what's bad, what's surprising, what was controversial. There's always something. We'll talk about what's next for some of the notable winners as well as losers. And the live chat is open that whole time. So we are taking your questions, your comments, and your hot takes in real time. We have a growing community of friends there that come hang out with us after the fights, and we would love you to be part of it. Until then, thank you once again for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week, and by all means, enjoy the fights. Yeah, and if you made it this far, hit like. <laughs>